Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Morning and welcome. You are with Garda Culture here on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. This week, I am delighted and privileged to bring you Professor Sheila Jeffries, author of Gender Hurts and Penile Imperialism, along with her recently released autobiography, Trigger Warning, My Lesbian Feminist Life. We'll look into the history, dangers and realities of gender ideology in its current context. I'll then continue my series of political interviews with strong female leaders. This week, I welcome Hana Tamaki from Vision New Zealand. We'll talk politics, family and modern leadership. Marty will join me for Media Matters, as he always does, and we'll talk about the week in politics, news and much more. And of course, I'll finish things off with the Woke News of the Week. Time to dive now into the mailbag and catch up with some of your feedback from Wendy. Hey, gobby lady, love your work and you have the best taste in music. Thanks very much, Wendy. Hopefully you'll enjoy the music selections today. Marie, I agree with another listener this morning that you can hold your own with the best. Also, the Animal Farm reading is excellent. Thank you to the team, Peter. Oh, thanks, Peter. Big thumbs up to Marie and Helen for finally calling out the lie of masculine toxicity and telling it like it is when it comes to women being the worst attackers of other women. Vipers pips come to mind. Keep up the great stuff. This is from the text machine. I've asked New Zealand Oil and Sue Gray to talk to Winston. He has some parliamentary experience. If he could take some freedom parties under his wing, it'd be such a coup. We all need unity. Hi, Marie, just letting you know that I am a baby boomer who will fight for my right for free speech and freedom to the death. In fact, all people my age that I engage with would do the same. I can't say the same for my sleeping but very intelligent brother and sister who think that I am still bats because I won't take the jab. Cheers, Mike. Oh, I know, Mike, it's so tough, isn't it? Hi there, great show. 
thank you. Interested to know what the freedom fighters, that's us, think about the next election. Who is our top candidate? I'm pondering Democracy New Zealand, NZ Doyle, and it appears Winston is finally having the right things to say lately. Thoughts? Oh, thoughts on that. You are so right. We've got a lot to think about particularly if we're looking around the issues of freedom and openness and freedom of speech, essentially all the elements that are within the Bill of Rights. And there are so many parties out there that can represent us. The one thing I will remind everybody of is that we all have two votes and there's nothing in the rules that says that both votes need to be exactly the same. So that could be a way for us to actually be able to express our democracy and actually vote for a couple of different parties if we so choose. But it is really important more than anything that we get out there and we do vote. The other thing that's most important is that in order to effect a change, we need to make sure that we have a voice where it counts. And that, I'm afraid, is at Parliament. That's the other thing that one must consider, is making sure that that voice counts. Nearly 8% of all votes at the last election were wasted. That's a huge number, and I would hate to see that number being bigger. Whoever we choose to vote for, vote wisely. I know I'm still trying to figure it out, but I'm sure that I'm not the only one. Uh, And I'm also, too, going to be continuing to talk to key leaders, particularly female leaders here in the political space. I'll be talking to Sue Gray and offers have gone out to New Zealand Loyal and Liz Gunn. Watch this space. Right now, free speech is under heavy attack in New Zealand, with the government constantly devising new ways to enforce censorship. To revive Honest Media and support RCR, join our Foundation Membership Club today. To learn more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members. Welcome back to Counterculture here on RCR with Marie, and it's now time to head on back down to Aotearoa Farm, and let's see how the animals are getting on. Welcome back to Aotearoa Farm. Chippy pork isn't any happier. As the dust has settled over Silifaku's accident, Chippy's desire to settle down to the business of running Aotearoa Farm and securing his elected place in the farmhouse is fading fast. News has spread far and wide that there are not one set of rules painted on the back of the barn, but a second set also on the farmhouse. Rules designed for those farm animals that claim to be descended from the original inhabitants of Kiwi Farm. This has created much confusion and dissent, as the original settlers have been getting more and more feed, better access to the vet sheds, paddocks and pastures for grazing, and chatter amongst the animals is becoming so loud that Chippy has had to deploy countermeasures to keep the peace. He's gathered with his collaborators and erected floodlights all around the farmhouse and farmyard and collected all the sheep together for chant training. The lights are so bright that the new rules on the farmhouse can barely be seen. And even if those from Oinky Luxusti complain, Chippy and his sycophantic sheep assure them that the lights are bright and all they need to know is that all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. This news is not washing with Winnie Ben. He's been trotting around the outer pastures, continuing to draw huge crowds, and even some of the sheep are starting to take notice. Winnie is descended from the very first inhabitants of the farm, and he reminds them that donkeys are long-lived, and when have you ever seen a dead donkey? 
He has seen these tricks played before by previous occupiers of the farmhouse and is preparing to make his move. Meanwhile, Squealer Robinson has an issue with holes. Holes in feed bags, holes in feed troughs, holes on the feed trailers, and the biggest hole in the farm's feed silo. Squealer has been busy trying to erect his own floodlights to deflect how low the feed stores are ahead of the election. Attention that hasn't gone unnoticed by Winnie Ben. The Kunikuni Wallow have the solution. Take more feed from those in the best pastures. They have feed to spare. The free-range pigs, they agree. Better yet, take more feed from them and allow access to the vet sheds for teeth care for all. So even if you have less feed, your teeth will be well cared for to eat what little feed you have left. All of this doesn't help, though, with the continued attacks from stoats and weasels against the flock at Aotearoa Farm, even against themselves. These are becoming more and more frequent, and Porky Jin got deployed with a bright new spotlight to assure everyone that it was not as bad as it appeared. Everything looks so much better on the farm under her bright light. So as Chippy settled in for the night with a wee spot of gin, He was wondering how does he reconcile the two sets of rules on the walls and what will this mean for his chances to continue Napoleon's legacy? After his fill of gin, he drifted off to sleep mumbling. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others, hoping tomorrow will be a brighter day under his brighter light. Stay tuned for what happens next week on Aotearoa Farm exclusively here on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. The following interview contains topics that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. If you would like to contact us in regards to any of our content, please email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. That's inbox at realitycheck.radio. Good morning and welcome. You are with Counterculture here with Marie and my first guest this morning is Sheila Jeffries, Professor Emeritus from Melbourne University, scholar, activist, author of titles such as Gender Hurts, The Lesbian Revolution, Penile Imperialism and her autobiography, Trigger Warning, My Lesbian Feminist Life. Sheila, good morning and welcome to Counterculture. Good morning, Marie. It is a great pleasure to have you. You actually, from feedback, since we've been doing the show for five months, you are the one person that crops up again and again and again whenever we touch issues around trans activism. And they all say to me, you must talk to Sheila Jeffries. You must talk to Sheila Jeffries. So we've been working on this a wee while to get you here. I'm so delighted to have you here. What are some of the things that you are now seeing? What are the changes from transgenderism, say, of the 20th century to the transgenderism of today? Mm, Well, that is a big question. I mean, there wasn't really transgenderism in the 20th century. I mean, it was only really in the 1990s, mid-1990s, that anybody started using that term all the sort of concepts that we now associate with it. I'm a historian, 
And I'm particularly, I'm a historian of sexuality as well as a political scientist, but originally I was a historian. So I'm interested, very interested, of course, in where this thing called transgenderism came from. And in the 20th century, the sexologists, the scientists of sex, who sort of gave names to everything, all the different sexual perversions, uh, gave the name of transvestism to the men's sexual perversion. Women don't have sexual perversions. The sexologists are quite clear about that. It is men. It's a problem of male sexuality. Um, so transvestism was uh, described the sexual perversion in which men were sexually excited by dressing up in women's clothes, engaging in women's practices, and so on. It, it has a long history, and sexologists were writing about it throughout the 20th century. They never ever thought for one moment that these men became women, and indeed these men themselves never said they were women. They understood themselves to be transvestites, and there were transvestites magazines and clubs and weekends away and all that sort of thing. So it was a sexual perversion which meant that these men got sexually excited by things like putting on women's underwear. Uh, these days, um, it's, it's much more complex and developed. There's a huge pornography of transvestism, of course. Uh, it's called transgenderism now. But transvestism is a name I prefer um, because I think it explains the sexual uh, nature of what was going on. So these days, uh, transvestites are likely to be sexually interested in things like um, possibly knitting, maybe even pink knitting. That can get them sexually excited or wearing false women's body suits, as well as wearing uh, what they see as women's clothes and any number of uh, practices that are sexually exciting because they are about masochism, because women have an inferior, sexual, uh, inferior status when men imitate these things, they get sexually excited. So for instance, in the pornography, you will find that the men uh, might have, the orgasm moment might be when uh, lipstick is forced onto them because they've been forced into the subordinate status of being a woman, and that's very exciting. So everything that is about that uh, subordinate status is sexually exciting to them. Now, what happened in the 1990s is things changed. In my book, um, Penile Imperialism from last year, I explained that it, after the so-called sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, an, a, a large number, a large and increasing number of men's sexual perversions, sexual interests, which include various forms of fetish and kink and sadomasochism and paedophilia and so on, uh, developed the practitioners of those things, developed campaigns to normalize them to change the law, to get these things made acceptable and reasonable so they could do them in public and so on and so on. And transvestism was one of those things. Uh, the, the campaigns to normalize the sexual perversions were all based on the gay rights campaign um, and they included you know, various set uh, things such as the, the changing the names, changing the language, changing the law and so on. It was a similar for all of these things. So in the 1990s, that very much was undertaken by the male practitioners of transvestism. Now, the problem for them was it was obviously, the sexologists all said it was a sexual perversion, and they wanted to normalize their practice 
And they understood that if people knew that it was about sex, that might be difficult to do. People might think it was odd that, for instance, you know, men might go into the women's toilets to get used tampons out of the bin and put them up their bottom, which is one of the things that men interested in this practice will do. I know the practices are really rather extraordinary when you start looking at what they actually are. Now, that sort of thing doesn't go down very well with the public. So in the 1990s, some men in America, one of whom was a lawyer, decided that they would, in order to normalize their practice and gain the right to just pretend to be women anywhere and go into any women's spaces and so on, they, they would set up a bill of rights. So they set up a bill of rights, which and they changed the language at this point. They said that actually there was nothing to do with sex. It was about gender identity. They were men who just happened to have, by some strange accident of fate, a gender identity which would normally belong to women, which meant things like wanting to wear high-heeled shoes and skirts and shave their legs and, and so on. It never sort of extended to wanting to do the housework because that's not actually how it was. Uh, but these men decided that they had uh, gender identity. It was innate something that couldn't be changed. Everybody needed to accept it. They were just like gay men in that. This is what they said. And so they set up this um, bill of rights, which said they must have the right to gender expression, the right to everybody to accept their gender identity. And so on. Gradually, over the next couple of decades, men internationally um, took up this demand. The transvestites took up the demand. They were heterosexual men not gay men, took up the demand, have their gender identities recognized in law and everywhere, which effectively meant being recognized as women. They were hugely successful in this, as we know. They were hugely successful because they attached themselves to gay rights. They said, we are just like gay men, right? We are just a special kind of person. So um, in 2007, in, uh, for instance, uh, they set up an international document called the Yogyakarta Principles, which was about uh, lesbian and gay rights and transgender rights. Now, in fact, of course, transgender rights are pretty much the opposite of gay rights. They are about heterosexual men who pretend to be lesbians because they carry on being interested in women and so on. And very quickly, in fact, these, these men started to take over uh, lesbian and gay organizations and force their priorities onto these lesbian and gay organizations. There was a bit of, uh, well, there was quite a bit of fight back in the beginning, you know, in the first sort of eight, 10 years of the 20th century, when I was looking at these things happening online, a lot of, of organizations in the States uh, and Stonewall in, in Britain fought this. They did not think that there was any similarity of interests between lesbians and gays and these heterosexual men with women's knicker fetishes. So they didn't think they should be joined together. And they fought that. Um, but gradually they succumbed and these organizations were taken over by these men. I think uh, because uh, gay men got many most of the things that they wanted, like gay marriage and so on. And some of these organizations, they needed another funding base. And so taking up this issue of the heterosexual men's fetishes seemed to be a good way to go. These organizations were already quite powerful. They were influential with governments. They had created a lot of um, social capital, social acceptance, quite reasonably. They had done a very good job. 
So these uh, male fetishes were fetishes were able to slip into those organizations, often in leadership roles, and give the impression that all of their demands should be met because they were really a kind of gay men. So in the 1990s, the word transgender, which was the word they took on, uh, was not really understood. People were not using that term. Um, but now, of course, it is well understood. Uh, so that's the moment at which a change happened. Absolutely crucial to say this is nothing to do with sex or we will not get accepted. And in fact, one of the strategies they used to sort of prove that it was nothing to do with sex is that they campaigned for the transgendering of children. They campaigned to get it accepted that children as young as two years old, because it was something innate, could have this gender identity of being the opposite sex, and that therefore, um, by the time they were nine, 10 years old, they should be on Lupron, this drug to delay puberty, which uh, damages the bones and damages the brain and so on and so on and so on. And then, you know, in their mid-teens, they could go on to opposite sex drugs, which would destroy their fertility and so on, have their breasts taken on. This was very, very, very vicious, of course, because it's a terrible, terrible harm to children, mostly gay children, mostly young gay boys and young lesbians. So in that way in particular as well, this campaign was very hostile to the interests of lesbians and gays. Very, very, very hostile. So that was one of the techniques that they used to try and say that it's not about sex, it's not about sex. Indeed, indeed of course, for the, some, the few adult women who seek to transgender, it's not about the sexual excitement of, of men's knickers or whatever, it's because they're unhappy lesbians and have been persuaded that uh, the, that pretending to be men will be profitable for them and, and a useful way to go. So it's the, the campaigns are, uh, are pushed forward, either heterosexual male cross-dressers, transvestites, but various other contingencies are picked up along the way. And it's very important to point out that middle-aged heterosexual women don't do it. I mean, women are not transvestites. They're not sexually excited by men's knickers. Uh, or men's boots or, or men's trouser belts or, or, or whatever it is. So uh, you do not get you know, middle-aged women or women in their 40s or 50s um, dressing up in their husband's clothing and coming down to him on the evening. I'm describing what men do to women and coming down to him in the evening and saying, I am now a woman in this ball gown. You are a lesbian. I am a lesbian. I expect to have lesbian sex with you. This is after like 20, 30 years of marriage, five children, so on, so on. Now, Women don't do it. Right now, if there was such a thing as gender dysphoria and a general gen, uh, a real problem of gender identity, having to skip about and go into the wrong bodies and all this sort of stuff, then you would find large numbers of ordinary heterosexual middle-aged women doing this in the same way that men do. And they absolutely 1000% do not. So that alerts us from the very beginning to the fact that we have a made up problem a made-up category here. Mm. Is there been an element where this movement has sort of swung itself or attached itself to the coattails of the success of the feminist movement from the sexual revolution onwards in order to sort of sneak through the back door, excuse the pun, um, as they're trying to sort of get their fetish recognised? Or have they just been opportunist and dogmatic and have tried to continue to have their relevance sought and do the male 
uh, it's really just an extension of ongoing male misogyny and power over women. I don't think that they have anything whatsoever to, to do with feminism. They have never mentioned it. They never show any interest whatsoever. Back in the late 1970s, when I was living in London, there were one or two men who tried to go to the women's discos. They wanted to go there and pretend to be lesbians and sexually harass lesbians, which they still do now. It's a very serious problem of these men sexually harassing lesbians and not allowing lesbians to have dating sites or clubs or anything without these men being able to be there and harass them. So there were just a couple of men in the late 1970s who tried to do that. They had no no interest in actual feminism. I mean, they were not setting up, you know, transvestite men's groups to fight for women's liberation or or anything of that kind. Mm. They didn't actually say there were women then, so that wouldn't have made Mm. sense. So no, they've never ever had anything whatsoever to do with women, except that they want to go to places where women are for their sexual excitements. That's that's what women mm. are to them, and that's why women are interesting. So currently today, um, and it's very interesting what you say, that you don't see middle-aged women dressing up and doing this. So currently within the sphere of young people that we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of young women feeling that they want to transition and change their gender to either gender non-binary or male. Is that then an effect of a social contagion as opposed to a sexual fetish? Uh, certainly for the women. The, 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 for the, young the children girls. Who, and young women who are seeking to transgender, the vast majority now are girls, three quarters are girls. It was absolutely the opposite 20 years ago. Uh, so And the numbers are huge now of girls. It was almost none 20 years ago. So in that sense, certainly it is a social contagion. But in terms of why is it happening, also the vast majority are same-sex attracted. So it's about young women. It's a it's a hard time for lesbians right now. You know, I'm a lesbian mm-hmm. feminist who fought in the 70s and 80s to create lesbian community and culture and make it possible for lesbians to have groups everywhere, all kinds of things going. All of that's been smashed away. It's so hard now for young women to be lesbians, um, partly because of the pornography that's developed and, and so on. So uh, let, young women don't even want to call themselves lesbians now. They prefer to say they're non-binary or queer or some other word, which doesn't say that they refuse to have anything to do with men because that's a very dangerous thing to say. Um, so the, the vast majority are uh, young women sec- who are sexually attracted to other young women. Uh, but there's other reasons why many, many young girls are going for this at the moment. It's going to stop. I mean, internationally, there's a big pushback and this is going to end. But a reason why these young girls are doing it is because of the influence of pornography on the world in which they are growing up, which is horrifying. Um, When you read about the effects of pornography on boys, the sort of things that boys are demanding, and being a young woman is extraordinarily difficult today. Um, The the things that heterosexual women were expected to do 20 years ago, it's it's different now because there's been a normalisation of sadomasochism, strangulation, for instance. Many countries are having to introduce special legislation on strangulation because these men all want to do it. The pornography teaches them to do it. And then sometimes the women die and they go into court and they say, she made me do it because she really wanted me to do it. Anal sex has been completely normalised. That simply wasn't the go 20 years ago. So the world in which women, young women live, which is extremely hateful of them, particularly sexually hateful of them, is one that some of them do not wish to be in as young women. That's completely understandable. 
But the way to deal with all of that is obviously not to cut off their body parts and sterilize them and all this terrible harm, uh, which is eventually going to be a massive, massive, massive medical scandal. And we're building up to that. We are building up to that. Yeah, well, I was going to bring that up. I mean, you've already had um, clinics, the Tavistock Clinic, being closed. So it's at that sort of initial forefront. What has been driving that? Has it been the parents or has it been detransitioners or has it been the work of people like yourself who are saying, this is simply wrong, it must stop. What is finally piercing the veil of the ideology? When I wrote Gender Hurts back in uh, 2014, I had a chapter on, on the children. And in fact, I had a couple of pieces in the newspapers from one in 2004 in Australia saying that it was completely unacceptable to be doing this terrible medical harm to these children. Um, But nobody was really taking that very seriously at the time. Uh, But when I wrote Gender Hurts, I, I was of the opinion that the two categories of person, and I wrote chapters on both of these in the book, that could start to sway this around was, first of all, the children, because people care about children. And I did think there would be detransitioning, as there now is. And I had a couple of detransitioners in that book. And I thought also that it would be the wives and female partners. Unfortunately, it has not been. The wives and female partners suffer terribly. And I explained in my book that that needs to be understood as psychological violence. It's horrendous when these men suddenly tell their wives and partners, sorry, I'm a woman now, I'm going to wear your clothes, you need to come shopping with me, you are a lesbian. The psychological harm is horrendous, but it is still the case that women are being told you need to support him, he's an adventurer, he's a wonderful person, he's brave, you know, his journey is important. So I thought that the wives would be listened to. That is not the case. Hardly anybody takes that seriously at all. And the women's uh, organisations on violence are absolutely not understanding that this behaviour of men is a form of psychological violence and needs to be seen as such. So I wasn't right about the wives and partners because actually nobody cares about adult women. Nobody cares. They do care about children. So who actually brought these issues in in the end in, in, into, out into the spotlight uh, in this country? Stephanie Arai Davies, who is not a medical, uh, she's somebody interested in children, and she set up an organisation, Transgender Trend, to talk about this issue and do lots and lots and lots of writing of this issue, lots of pressuring. There were some staff, brave staff, at the uh, Gender Identity Clinic for Children who came out and started speaking. There were detransitioners. There were some lawyers who were prepared to support the detransitioners. So it's a lot of people. And now we have organizations of therapists, of psychiatrists, starting to develop in in different countries. And this is happening in Australia as well. So it's it's huge now and it's unstoppable and that will stop. And that will be a problem for the adult male transvestites because they will no longer have this argument that children do it too, it's nothing to do with sex, and so on and so on, because the children will not be doing it too in 10 years' time. I think we can pretty much guarantee that that is the case. In a way, a form of child abuse, isn't it? I mean, I had a child abuse advocate on here a couple of weeks ago, and the stats in New Zealand are horrendous. I mean, one in three girls, one in four boys are sexually abused before the age of 16 in this country. And you throw the layer of transgenderism on that, 
And the statistics with what we're doing to children is really quite horrifying. And yet, in this country, you can still have, I've also spoken to another parent, where teachers and schools are actively enabling these young girls to go down a potentially medically irreversibly damaging process and the parents aren't even involved. It is they don't even tell the parents. It's a way of state capturing the children and forcing terrible harms upon them. It's a completely, completely shocking. I don't know whether you're aware, but there's a, a problem at the moment with Costa Coffee. And Costa Coffee is doing an advertising campaign in which it features what looks like a young girl who has had her breasts removed and you can see the scars. I mean, how extraordinary that this has become the ideology of whole societies and of capitalism at this point, to the extent that they are promoting the mutilation of girl children in coffee chains. I mean, what an extraordinary situation that we have reached. I've always think with this, it's follow the money. Absolutely. Where is Absolutely. the money coming for, from for all of this? It is high, uh, strongly connected into capitalism, of course, because there are lots and lots and lots of monetizing possibilities connected with transgenderism, not just the pharmaceutical companies, although it is huge for the pharmaceutical companies, but also, of course, many other organizations are trying to get into, into the act, like Costa Coffee, like various um, beer companies and so on. But they're finding that actually, as we all know, the vast majority of the ordinary public does not buy it. Once they know what it's about, and for a long time, they did not know what it was about. But now the surveys that are being done in Scotland and the UK and other countries show that the vast majority of people are not approving of uh, transgender ideology, particularly the transgendering of children. And so they're, they're happy to join in boycotting campaigns of all the companies that are adopting this. But I mean, the adoption by all these companies is extraordinary. It's just that I think they've made a mistake and they are beginning to learn that they have made a mistake. They thought it was the next best thing after sort of gay washing everything that they would actually do all this transgender stuff. So you can't walk into your local supermarket without a pride flag that's got the pink and the, ba the baby pink and the baby blue for transgenderism added to it. You have to walk over it to get your groceries. I mean, it's an extraordinary situation where so many capitalist enterprises have actually now taken up the ideology and are forcing it on people who do not want it. I mean, the, the, as I say, the majority of people are not accepting it. I'm talking to Sheila Jeffries. At the forefront of this, I've certainly noticed it is gay and, le gays and lesbians that are not down with it. And you have been most vocal about pushing back against it. What about organisations such as Stonewall? I mean, they have bought into this hook, line and sinker. What are the schisms that are going on behind the scenes in those organisations that have done so much good work, as you said, to achieve things such as gay marriage, who are now, it almost seems like there's an unravelling going on. What are some of the things happening in that space? There is an unravelling going on. What happened with Stonewall, of course, is that a couple of years ago, Stonewall took up the transgender issue in 2014. Before that, it was determined not to because some gay organizations were sensible enough to say, if we touch this issue, it will hugely damage us. This will be damaging, as, and it is now being very damaging because it's being used against 
lesbians and gay men in America and in other places by right-wing organizations and so on. So in 2014, Stonewall took up transgenderism and it then became the main their main focus. So they introduced schemes that firms could um, apply to so that they would get sort of ticks and, and be said to be, you know, champions, Stonewall champions, and universities did it, health service agencies did it, government departments did it. I mean, completely extraordinary. But Stonewall had built a wonderful reputation as a champions for lesbians and gay men, and therefore all these different organisations assumed that they were a good thing and it would be good to be attached to them. So they had hundreds and hundreds of organisations paying them huge amounts of money, the government was paying them huge amounts of money, and they went round and trained health service workers, university lecturers, and so on, on the uh, absurdity of the transgender ideology. A couple of years ago, two women who had been involved in Stonewall in the beginning, Bev and Kate, who've been doing some wonderful TV interviews of late, um, they said that they needed to set up a new organization to fight this because it was doing such harm to lesbians and gay men, not just through the transgendering of children, but in, in many, many other ways. So they set up an organization called LGB Alliance in the UK, which now has branches in other countries. It may have a branch in New Zealand as well. Um, and they are fighting the ideology. I mean, they've just fought an extraordinary legal battle in Britain because uh, the organization Mermaids in League with Stonewall, Mermaids is an organization which promotes the transgendering of children. Uh, it started off as a parents group to support parents, and then it became a promotion organization. Mermaids and Stonewall objected to the fact that the LGB Alliance had put in for um, a charity status. They said, no, they shouldn't be a charity. They, you know, they were full of hate speech and all of this other stuff that they said. And they lost. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, they lost that case. And that's quite damaging, I think. That very damaging for Mermaids, damaging uh, for Stonewall and very good for the LGB Alliance. And, and Bev and Kate have been doing these triumphal um, and wonderfully clear interviews about all of this. So that's one th that's happening in many lesbian and gay organisations, I think, that people who were at one time involved are looking at it and thinking, my God, what's happening? Or leaving those organisations and becoming concerned. So we're getting more and more activity on that front as lesbians and gay men fall out of step, mostly lesbians. It was lesbian feminists who started this whole campaign to assert women's rights against transvestites. Definitely, definitely lesbian feminists from the very beginning. So let's talk about feminism, because feminism has gone through many evolutions over the decades. One of the observations I have is that when any of these ideological matters come up, whether it be gender ideology, race-based ideology, or political ideologies, it's often my most vociferous critics are other women, as women on both sides of this battleground. And what are you seeing in terms of modern feminism and the trans-exclusionary radical feminists versus this current bunch, which I don't even know what to call them. I call them something quite nasty, actually. But how do women, how do we reclaim ourselves from this, from this ideology? I, I don't think for a moment that on this issue, our most serious opponents are women. They're definitely men. They are transvestites and those who support transvestites. And at this point, it's extremely clear 
that the transvestite campaigners have joined up with all sorts of other men's rights groups, um, such as incels. There's incels now in many countries, which means involuntary celibates. It's men who blame women for not wanting to have sex with them and sometimes go out with guns and knives and kill quite large numbers of people. They've killed quite a few hundred people, and they're now seen as a terrorist organization in the US. So these groups of men are very much coming together. You see them coming together online in the sort of terrible harassment and abuse of women, the death threats and threats of terrible violence. We're getting more and more violence at organizations like uh, Kelly. Stand up for women. Um, Kelly, yeah, uh, here in Auckland. Mm. Yes, in, in Auckland and in other countries that she's been to speak, the men are getting more violent in a way which is extraordinary and extraordinary to many of us because, you know, I was a feminist in the 1970s and men did not attack women. They not only didn't attack women, they had no interest. They never turned up at marches. They didn't try to get into meetings. They had no interest whatsoever, zilch, right? Now, in this very, very different time, after there's been a massive um, pornography industry creating hatred of women and psyching men up in an extraordinary way over the last couple of decades, now we're in this situation where men are prepared to be actually violent and actually attack women. I mean, it's an extraordinary stage that we've reached. And these violent and hateful men are making it extremely difficult, for instance, for women to be. Um, in the public world, in the political world, women MPs are receiving terrible, terrible abuse, particularly if they stand up on this issue, but they are receiving it anyway. And the U United Nations Commissioner on Violence Against Women, Reem Al-Salim, um, whose campaigns for women's sex-based spaces and says women need to have their own spaces, she has received the most terrible abuse. Men don't receive abuse at all in this way. Very, very, very little. So we're in this new space where men generally, not just transvestite activists, are joining together to make more on women's speech, on women in public life. So I don't see other women as our own worst enemies or whatever on this issue. I'm very, very clear of what the problem is. What is happening now, which is really interesting, and I don't think that the transvestites activists understood that this would happen, is that a huge new wave of feminism is developing, which is absolutely marvelous. And it's taking place, place a pace all of the time. It's absolutely wonderful. I'm getting emails through my website from young women at university who are reading my books and getting in touch with me. Got huge numbers of, of middle-aged women, of course, who are concerned about their children. Concerned about their girl children in particular, and very, very distressed. And we've got lots and lots and lots of feminists who have been involved in the 70s and 80s coming back in and getting involved. So we've got in all countries an extraordinary movement now. Of course, I'm I'm one of the directors of Women's De uh, Declaration International. We set up a declaration of of women's sex-based rights saying that women's rights were being removed by transvestite activists and by the notion of gender. And we tried to reassert all of the rights that exist in CEDAW, the Women's 
UN Convention from 1979, women's right to sports, women's right to speech, women's right to engage in politics. We, we, try, we are reasserting all of those. We have groups all over the world. We have activists involved all over the world. I'm meeting women all over the world. It's a most extraordinary uprising that is happening now. So far from women being particularly a problem for me at this point, mm. we're in a new movement I never thought would happen. I thought mm. it was all over Red Rover. Now, the first decade or so of the 20th century, I thought that was it. There was nothing. We'd lost all of our spaces, all of our bookstop shores, all of our com community hubs. All of We'd lost everything. And feminist, feminism was being pushed out of universities by all this postmodernism and all kinds of rubbish. Um, so I thought it was the finish. Are you feeling history repeat itself? Well, we are getting feminism back. There's, there's yeah. some big differences between the feminism we're getting now and previously, not in the ideas really, but obviously in the ways that we can organise because we're mostly organising online. Zoom meetings are happening all over the world. Women are getting in touch from, uh, and so on. Um, so there's, uh, th th But there are groups being founded on the ground, mm -hmm. lots and lots of them in the UK, not exactly consciousness and crazy in groups as they were before and it's extraordinary that it is happening because now it's so dangerous you know it wasn't dangerous in the 70s and 80s anybody could set up any groups do anything now any women involved in any of these activities are likely to be attacked they're likely to be disciplined in their workplaces possibly sacked i mean it's actually dangerous to have feminist ideas now and we are still getting a big movement developing again. I mean, there are all kinds of ways in which it's it's not the same, and we can talk about that some other time, mm. because I'm very interested in the ways that it's different. There's certainly a big movement. I'm seeing a weaponized kindness, I call it. They take the very best of womanhood in terms of our natures, and they've turned that against us. And I see that a lot in this country in the education sector. So a lot of this ideology now is driven through the education sector and through the schools. Yes, and yes, and that, for, as a parent of, teen, I've got teenage boys, and I see their friends and I've spoken to other parents. Some schools are not down with it, which is great. My boys are in a Catholic school, so the Catholics are certainly not down with us, single-sex Catholic school. However, there are... It only takes one activist teacher within a school environment to turn the entire thing on its head. And they've got very powerful support. They have support in this country. There's an organisation called Inside Out and another one called Rainbow Youth. They're heavily funded, uh, government funding and social funding, which essentially all, all roads lead back to the government. And they have a power within these schools to set guidelines because teachers are so pressured to get information out there that they take the, the easiest path that they can. They have the information provided to them. And they literally told the lie that by teaching this and affirming this, you are affirming kindness to this child. Well, what I think is happening is that this vicious movement to suppress women's rights and to medicalize and mutilate children it's um, it what it's done is it's taken the language of social justice movements in general it's taken the language that's been developed over the last few decades by social justice movements and the concepts and yes they are being weaponized against us so for instance the concept of diversity which in theory should mean anti-racism and anti-sexism and so on. That's been absolutely turned on its head. And 
feminists and women are told, you need to be diverse. You've got to have men in your toilets and changing rooms naked to your 12, next to your 12-year-old daughter. That is diversity. This is an extraordinary thing that has happened. Um, and what I find, one of the things that I find most extraordinary is the hypocrisy in this, because, for instance, what is being said about transgenderism and drag is never being connected with this other very significant issue of racism and the blackface. I mean, in this country, for instance, um, there was a wonderful piece on the television about it just last week with the whole history of came from the US. It, um, this the, the black and white minstrels was invented for white men to imitate black men and, and do all kinds of terrible mockery of them. And it was very clear that it was about trying to prevent the abolition of slavery in America, which came later, of course, than in Britain and other places. And it was to trying to prove that slaves were of inferior status and they really were stupid, um, happy-go-lucky simpletons and so on and so on. That's what it was about. And the first man who came over to Britain from America, bringing the ideology, he actually wrote all of that down. That's what it was about. So it was viciously racist from its beginning. And it took until 1978 and a campaign in Britain by the Campaign Against Racial Discrimination to get rid of the black and white minstrel show from BBC TV. It was a big campaign. When they started the campaign, nobody understood what it was about. They were no problem at all. Black and white minstrel was absolutely marvellous. If you see it, it's shocking. Absolutely shocking. Well, of course, many feminists, including myself, point out that drag is exactly the same as minstrelism. It's the mocking of the underclass by the superior class, the mocking of the voice, the clothing, absolutely shocking. But of course, drag is different because it's totally sexualized. I mean, if you see any of the pictures of what's going on in a lot of the drag shows, all of the stuff around bottoms and anuses, and I mean, it's just absolutely, extremely, extremely sexualized. It's sex industry, really. The names, you know, like one woman, one man on Hampstead Heath is called the whore of hamster teeth and so on. But I mean, this is this is what these, these names are about. But now they are going into schools, being paid to go into schools and public libraries to train children in diversity. It's called diversity. But lesbians are never invited in. People with disabilities are not invited in. And the, dra the, the drag queens are not wanting to go into hospitals and so on. They are going for children which is uh, potentially a problem in itself because it's a, it's a form of indoctrination. So I'm very interested in the social justice movements and how they don't join up. The way that the language is being perverted and used, the way that racism is being kept separate from this issue, and it's certainly not separate from this issue. I mean, there are there are drag queens who, who imitate um, Aboriginal uh, women in Australia, for instance, you know, there are uh, drag queens who pretend to be Korean and so on and so on. So there, these, these issues are need to be understood. They need to be taken apart and they need to be understood sort of issues of vicious sexism and vicious racism. And we need to get back to some of the understanding we once had as those of us who were involved in social justice movements instead of in, involved in this tremendous diversion. And it is a terrible, terrible diversion from all of the serious issues that we need to be involved with? Why are we going for promoting men's wearing of women's knickers in public places rather than dealing with all these other very serious political issues that face us?
Mm. The devolution of language, you hinted to that. And I've seen it particularly around, again, with children. Why can't you call a pedo a pedo anymore? I mean, what's this minor attractive person's rubbish? And that devolution of language is, I think, very pernicious. Yes. I mean, this is one of the things that, as I was saying earlier, the campaigns to normalise gay men's or uh, heterosexual and gay men's sexual perversions has taken on board. They have wanted to change the language that the sexologists can use about them to desexualize the practices, and then they they sanitize those names. I mean, the, in terms of paedophilia, I had a whole chapter on this, as I say, in penal imperialism. And the things that are going on there are quite extraordinary in, in criminology, for instance, in the science of criminology. Um, and there are these writings that, I've, um, that I have used which say that um, pedophiles are not a problem. Um, they, they, there's this whole group of people called men called non-touch pedophiles. They would never touch children. They'd like to, but they never, never, never will. But they need to be able to use the dolls. Um, but if you if you create a stigma and you're you're socially disapproving of these men, they'll be forced. They'll feel they have to use children. So you mustn't, 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 mustn't disapprove of them. If you do, they will sexually abuse children. But everybody should love them. They should be accepted in the community and understood as non-touch pedophiles, minor attractive persons, who are a special kind of person. They say it's biological, like they say that transgenderism is biological. There's nothing biological about it. This is a socially constructed form of abusive sexuality. So, yes, it's absolutely fascinating the way in which paedophilia is being normalized right now. I mean, I also write about how back in the 1970s, the paedophile information exchange and gay activist alliance, these were groups of gay men who campaigned to normalize paedophilia. And it was accepted at that time. The uh, Liberty, National Council for Civil Liberties, as it was called then in Britain, had them at their conferences giving speeches. Or the gay magazines all had pieces promoting paedophilia. It was called, you know, loving children and allowing children to love. There was all kinds of language about how wonderful it was. Um, so that it, that was big in the 1970s in the way that transgenderism now. And I see the same trajectory, hopefully. It wasn't as big as transgenderism was, but there was a great deal of acceptance of it. It wasn't until the early 80s that some of these organizations got um, shut down. I'm afraid when you start looking at men's, heterosexual and gay men's, unfortunately, I have to say, forms of sexuality, some of the forms of sexuality, it's a very serious problem. And it's these perversions which, which the campaigners are, are wanting to normalize, legalize, and so on. I'm sorry that some of the things I say are shocking, but I've been, you know, I've been writing about this for so long. I've written books about it. And yes. Honestly, Sheila, don't worry. My show is the one that's become known for all the shocking content. So I wouldn't I wouldn't worry about that. Because, and I think people ought to know because hmm. I think otherwise people will go out there thinking that these men suddenly become women in the street one day and poor people, they need to be understood. No, we need to actually understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. I just wanted to look at your autobiography, Trigger Warning. Why now? Because you're still so active in the space. You're still writing prolifically. You're still working. I just feel your autobiography is a little bit too soon. I think there's still a lot more to come. I mean, is there going to be a part two potentially? I have no idea about that, but I thought I'd better get it done now um, because 
you know, the women I know and the women I interviewed were all getting older. We don't know when anybody's going to, you know, drop off their perch. We, we actually don't. So I thought, yes, get it done. And also I needed to get it done because a whole new wave of feminism was developing. Lots of young women becoming involved who had absolutely no idea what we did. They had absolutely no idea that in the 70s and 80s in Britain, for instance, we had feminist bookshops in every town, usually run by lesbians. We had lesbian groups in every town. We had black women's groups. We had working class women's groups. We had consciousness raising groups, loads and loads of groups in every single city. We had discos. We had women's centers. There was so much. There was a massive community and we were very, very effective. You know, the anti-pornography group that I was in, we got... Um, sexually violent films, advertisements taken off the underground trains. I mean, to imagine that now, but, but, but we did all of those things and we were remarkably successful and there is no knowledge of it. There's absolutely no knowledge because we got completely buried. We got completely buried from the universities when the studies got tossed out. Um, I've just discovered that um, the a library, uh, the council libraries in Calderdale in this country have banned all gender critical books, including uh, trigger warning. So trigger warning has just been put out of the library. It can be found under the counter. But yes, so f- feminism pretty much got pushed out of universities. I mean, in the university I taught in, in gender studies, which you'd think would actually have stuff about lots of stuff about feminism. There was nothing about radical feminism at all. My books were not taught there, absolutely not known, though those who taught it were a few doors down the corridor. And my students would come to me and say, Sheila, this is a bit of a puzzle. It's nothing like I thought it would be. So the feminism was got out of universities. It was got out of pretty much everywhere. And it became sort of, oh, you're an old fashioned one. Would you bother talking about that again? And I think, I fear now, that is one of the reasons why uh, the transvestite campaigns has been as successful as they are. I think that a lot of men in institutions and public places have thought that women are just boring. They've gone on and on long enough and they should have everything they wanted by now. And uh, some have been only too pleased to jump on something which will enable them to put women down and actually have... You know, an argument against women's rights, because otherwise, how could you possibly imagine that all these political parties, Labour parties and the left and so on and institutions, even the health services, how could you imagine that they would take seriously the idea that men can become women and then not allow women to speak about that? and discipline women and toss women out if they try to speak about it? I mean, that's extraordinary to imagine. So I have to assume that before all of this happened and transvestite activists were able to take advantage of it, there was a building backlash against women. You know, 50 years, women had, been, had achieved some kind of acceptance as equal human beings, and that annoyed an enormous number of men. I have no doubt it did at all. And so the, if that backlash is what was taken advantage of and why all of this has taken place so fast and in such an extraordinary way. Censorship, I think, has also played a huge part in that because yeah. the fact that your books have been removed from libraries is, for me, abhorrent. You know, this is why the station exists, because of the level of censorship that is in our societies now. And these conversations need to be had. And there is an opinion, I think, from those in governance that us as individuals are not capable of making up our own minds. 
which is very, very sad. For the academy, I mean, do you look now at universities, surely you must be getting itchy thinking, we need to take this back. How do we take this back? How do we get the next generation to actually right the wrongs that have gone on in the last 20 years? It's so extraordinary and distressing to me is that, you know, for for decades, we work in social justice movements to actually make things better. So in my university, for instance, I was involved in a, com- a committee to, to write a little pamphlet on how we shouldn't say chairman, we should cha- cha- chairperson or chairwoman or whatever, and we should change the language that was used so that women could actually be seen as equally human and so on. And many, many examples of those sorts of things that we did. And now it's all being turned against us in this extraordinary way. And we have become the criminals who do the terrible behavior where once upon a time we were those actually trying to make things better. So, yes, it's it's an extraordinary situation that we're in here. And it's a particularly a, a extraordinary situation, I think, for any of those who actually were involved in equal opportunities committees or programs or whatever. They're having to deal with this. They're completely silenced. I imagine they're having to leave if they still have any feminist ideas because they could not possibly stay. Well, I mean, I live in a country where our prime minister doesn't even know what a woman is, Sheila. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. I'm talking to Sheila Jeffries. Where can people find your body of work? So they've heard this today and they've heard about some of the books that we've discussed. They know that potentially they can't pop down to the library to get it. Where can they actually find your body of work and get some more information? I have a website, which is sheila-jeffries.com. All of my papers that are not in books, my academic papers and so on, which are not very academic, they're all very straightforward, are up there. My speeches, videos, all that kind of stuff is there. I would also advise women to go to um, the website of the Women's Declaration International. I would like them to sign the declaration. We've got 36,000 signatures, I think, now. And men and women can sign, and it's very important that they do. Um, in terms of my books, I have written 12 books, and a number of them are available from Spinifex Press, a wonderful still surviving feminist press in Australia. So please go on to the Spinifex Press website where you can get uh, trigger warning and you can get uh, penile imperialism and some of my earlier books, which they have reprinted there. Uh, And yes, of course, uh, do go to your local library and order these books because some of those local libraries will not know who I am. And Mm. it might take them a while to find out and realise that they need to censor me. And go to your local bookshops and order books. Oh, that's fantastic. Look, I do so appreciate your time uh, because it is getting very late for you. Thank you very much for joining me this morning. I've been talking to Professor Sheila Jeffries. A great, great pleasure. Thank you very, very much. Do not disappear here on Counterculture Stall. More to come, including catching up with Hana Tamaki, as well as the Woke News of the Week. A great delight to talk to you, Marie. Thank you very much. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. 
With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way, because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together, and so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. You're with Marie, and this is Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. Sheila's work is an excellent resource if you're wanting to get all the information you can around gender and trans ideology, and it will help you become more informed if faced and having to engage with courageous conversations. If you want the details of the feminist bookstore that carries all her titles, just email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio and we will send you the link. Or leave us your feedback on our interview with Sheila. Text us at 2057. I want to send out a huge thank you to everyone who has joined the Foundation Members Club. We had our first backstage pass Zoom on Sunday and it gave you a glimpse of some of the team here at RCR. You can still join and get benefits like curated news bites, delivered to your inbox, mates rates on merch, and tickets to our monthly Zooms. Memberships can be either monthly or yearly. There's something to fit your budget. Learn more about membership at realitycheck.radio backslash members. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. You are with Marie, and my next guest is the leader of Vision New Zealand, Hannah Tamaki. Good morning. How are you, Hannah? Hello, nice to be talking with you. It is lovely to be talking with you. We were just saying before we got started, it's getting to the pointy end of things now with, I mean, what are we now, sort of 70-ish, 60-ish days to go. How are you feeling? I mean, you are standing this year in Tamaki Makaro. Last time we were in Wairiki. Why the switch? Closer to home logistics or Rawiri driving you crazy? (laughs) <laughs> actually, when I was campaigning with him and Tamaki, I actually enjoyed it. But no, I think uh, I was considering Tamaki for Tamaki last time, but because I had um, such a big touch group down in Waiariki, mm. I thought, you know what, I'll go back down into Waiariki. Um, I'd asked to go, I was asked by a few people if I'd go and do that. And I decided, yeah, why not? Because it's my first time of actually campaigning and standing. So I thought I'd go where I was familiar with lots of um, different people. Um, sadly, I didn't get the result I wanted, but you know what? I got the experience I needed, and that mm. to me made a lot of difference. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now, Tamaki Mikado, though, is a re- is unique, I think, amongst all the Māori seats because yeah. it's the only fully urban seat. Yeah, and I think because uh, we we cover quite a wide range of Tamaki, um, and I love the slogan Tamaki for Tamaki. I think it's it's got a little ring to it. But there are so many urban Māori, and and I would class myself as one. I was not raised on the Māori. I would go the odd time purely because my mum um, left our family home when I was around six, and we were raised in a, a Pakia home. My dad Pakia, but. There are so many people like us, half caste, quarter caste, a lot of Māori who love the Māori way, love the culture, but we're not um, entrenched in, in our mm. culture. We love and respect our culture. And I think there's that element of professionalism, uh, wanting to get ahead, do better for your families, and that's why I think there are so many um, Māori actually in Tamaki. And when you're out talking to the constituents, what are they telling you? What are, what are their concerns as urban Māori living in Tamaki Makaurau right now? Well, of course, everyone talks about the cost of living and, and you know, the rents and hard to get housing. But the, the other thing is a lot of them are really fearful about the next generation family. And to be honest, in government now there's no family there's there's not things about family we need we need a pushback for the family because family is the cornerstone of society and if you you know you and enable families support families you get better outcomes for families so a lot of them it is they're really concerned about the next generation their children their mokopona and I suppose for us because we are a five generation family that that are strong in family values. That's probably why, for me, my top priority in Vision New Zealand is our family policy first, health policy, then then the others will follow. But for me, as a, a nana, great nana, um, it is about the family. It is about making um, New Zealand the way it was before. I know we can't totally go back there, but there are some beautiful things about New Zealand that we want to wind back in. Mm. You know, opportunity. One of the things I've noticed is that there are a lot of what I call conservative Māori voices, traditional Māori voices, as you say, who have family and whānau at the centre of their worlds, who have been a bit drowned out. Are you finding that with the people you're speaking to? Yeah, well, you'll find that we have a group called Nan Up who are associated with the Man Up group. Mm. And, you know, they talk all the time about how, you know, their their concerns are. And, and of course, they talk their children and their grandchildren. But at the end of the day, I think all of us um, trying to do better for ourselves, being able to help other people, assist other people, and not be afraid to speak up. And that's why you've got to actually be somebody who's prepared to, to get yourself out there. I mean, you're not going to be liked. You know, it's not about being liked. It's about doing things for other people. And so for me, there's no point in me sitting at home complaining about the way things have changed or the way things are. It's better for me to try and get in there and be maybe a little voice in a big cog, helping mm-hmm. um, direct and guide and give some, you know, encouragement around family, around health, around housing. And considering, I've, you know, Brian and I have worked with people for over 40 three years we did it before uh on a smaller scale but once we you know became christians we actually saw the change that we could make in our lives in the lives of the people that we got to know and then we realized that we could take it wider and then we're able to encourage other people when they turn their lives around they made changes 
they learned new skills for, around family, that they succeeded. And then what, what happens when you succeed? The first thing you want to do is help others succeed. And so for me, it is about bringing some um, element of support, encouragement, and a little bit of faith. It goes a long, long way for me. Mm-hmm. And so all of all the things around family, around helping people, that's my top priority. Excellent. Why do you think that there is so many misconceptions around you and Brian and what you're trying to do with either Vision New Zealand or Destiny Church? What are some of the, A, the biggest misconceptions that people have and why do you think that they are out there today? Well, I think when we first came to Auckland, people had this impression, um, we put big billboards up, but they didn't realise that we'd had two churches before we came to Auckland. We started in Te Awamutu in 1985, then we went to Rotorua in 1990, and we came here in 98. Now, a lot of people don't think that we look like Māori. We're Māori, but I think because we live a, a different life, we you know, care about how we look, the way we present ourselves. We were helping people. And uh, it first started with um, a 60-minute article like 25 years ago, Cameron Bennett did it, and he put his camera over our fence and we had a little wee um, plastic boat and he called it a launch. And they had all these things saying that we robbed from the poor. But reality is we've been working all this time. We've, you know, we've bought homes, sold homes, made a little bit of money on each home. We've only got one home. All these people have all these misconceptions about us. But the thing is, all churches, if you go down the Auckland motorway and you see the beautiful big temple that the Mormon church is building, I never see anybody complaining about that. But they're the very same people that tithe and give to an organisation like Destiny and other churches. So all churches take tithes and offerings. But they, I think they had this little bit of fascination with Brian and Hannah Tamaki because of the fact we were turning people's lives around, we were making an impact. So the Sunday Sunday Star Times focus piece a couple of Sundays ago, mm. I found that really fascinating because it almost seemed like this absolute disbelief from the journalist that actually a group of adults can come together from different parts of our community and differing opinions and actually sit down like grown-ups and have a conversation and work stuff out. What a novel concept, Hannah. I know. And, you know, the thing is, when you like people, you actually like all people from all walks of life. Um, and I think maybe they live a very narrow lifestyle where it's all about, you know, journalism and, and and climbing the ladder to success. But I think you're a better person when you can embrace other people and you all climb a ladder together. You help each other up. And I think that's part of Brian and my ethos really is about enabling and helping other people. So, yeah, it was a bit strange. And I, I did actually have a go at one of the guys and said, look, you know, I think that was a bit rude throwing stuff in about Sue and saying, you know, this conspiracy stuff. I said, there are so many of us that made a decision, we chose, and other people made choices as well not to be vaccinated. And now here we are and look, we're all we're all fine. Um, mm-hmm. and the mandates were, were just terrible. And I remember when I was campaigning, I was able to leave Auckland because I was um, campaigning in Waiheke and I'd drive out, wave to everybody and come back in and stuff. And right then I said, I'm against mandates. I'm not going to be vaccinated. And Hillary Barry took a shot at me um, and said, what sort of leader am I? Um, if Jesus was around, he'd get vaccinated. And I'm like, you know what, silly lady? I feel like actually getting a hold of her and saying, now, um, Hillary, I'm still unvaccinated and I'm fine. And there are a whole lot of other people that are vaccinated. Some of them are fine, but there are some of them that now have health complications. You know, your attack on me when she's actually the anti-bullying ambassador. Hello. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there have been a lot of people in that space at that time 
are finding difficult to roll their comments back. Yeah, and I think some of them are embarrassed that um, they, you know, just believed it. And understandably how people did believe it. But I think that when we were making decisions to look, I just want to wait. You can still get it. You can still pass it on to others. And then we don't know what the side effects could be. If you sit back and do that, then why would people have problems with it? But then we become conspiracists. We're anti the government. Well, we're anti-mandates. To, be, to start with, that, that's honestly how we did feel about it. And I am still um, very anti any type of mandate um, because I think people should be able to have the freedom to choose. So I did hit him up a little bit. So I'm actually thinking of doing a, a rebuttal. He said I could do a 100-word rebuttal. I'm like, oh, I better really cut my words back down. But I said, why do you guys regurgitate all this old stuff? I said, it's sad mm. that journalism this day is about regurgitating old well, you know what regurgitation is like, mm. it's, been, it's vomit. And I said, you know, you say self-styled. Well, everybody self-styles. We all go out with self-style. They say these things. And you know what? Our five-year-old granddaughter, I called her this morning, styling some outfits of clothes. And I said, oh, what are you doing, Vana? She said, oh, I'm getting these ready for after school. She had all these things, shoes and everything lined up. And I thought, well, this year she's self-styling. Maybe must run in the family. But, you know, there's, there's just these throwaway lines that, People have got away with, for many, many years, just saying whatever they want to about Brian Tamaki, blah, 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 Hannah Tamaki. And I think now a lot of people have wound that back. Actually, to be honest, on the road, we've had hundreds of people come and apologise to Brian for believing the media and saying, look, I'm, I'm, I'm just so sorry that I got sucked into that whole thing. And he goes, well, that's fine because he said, you and a whole lot of other people, but I didn't know you. You didn't know me. You know me now. And so, hey, let's just start a a fresh relationship. And I think that's been really good. So when Mm. Brian was the first person to actually stand up and say, we're we're going, I'm going to stand up for the rights of all people, not just people of faith. Well, we were so surprised on the 2nd of October that in um, 2021, oh yeah, that was like 21, so many people that weren't part of our circle were there not wearing masks not social distancing whereas we made it really clear to our people you've got to wear masks you've got to social distance you've got to scan in we, our people were told them to do all of that and all these thousands of others weren't you realize that hang on a minute he gave hope and helped get rid of a whole lot of people's fear by standing up and those people today are still very thankful to Brian for doing that because it gave them the courage to get out of their homes, to meet with their friends and family again and to live life the way that we were used to living it. Mm, well, here I'm in Hawke's Bay. So Michael, who's standing for the Tukituk electorate yeah, down here. Yeah, and he's uh, a lovely man. Now they started having the first gatherings opposite the business that my husband and I then owned and ran. So we saw these going on, so we actually went across, and because we weren't done with what was happening, we probably went to yeah, at least two before we even realised like, any connection at all with Destiny Church, yeah. and, and because it wasn't about that, it was about allowing a space for people to come together and express their concerns and speak. And, yeah. and freely without censorship. So thank you very much for that. And as you said, I know my husband's view, he's, I mean, my husband's an atheist, I'm an agnostic. Our opinions around the modern church had been formed in one form or another through yeah. the media, and we saw another side. So yeah. for that, thank you. You know, And that's why Brian started the Freedom and Rights Coalition, because he, he, you know, 
He'd been on all these Zooms with all these leaders around the nation and they're going, oh, look, we've got to have another meeting. And Brian goes, no, we can't keep meeting. He says, and then he got um, a businessman, a farmer, and I think a teacher. He said, we'll all stand together so it doesn't look like Brian Tamaki's doing it. Well, they all pulled out and it was just him by himself. And he says, well, here I am again, I'm alone, but I'm still going to do it. And he was warned by the police not to do it. At first they said, yes, we'll give you masks, we'll give you sanitizer, we'll help you. And then... The night before, they said, if you do it, there's a high chance of you being arrested. And Brian said, well, I'm not going to let the people down that now I've told I'm going to get there. He said, I didn't stand up to chicken out. So he stood up and he did it. And he said, and what he'd done is with our teams, he said, you don't have to do it. If you want to do it, you're welcome to. But, you know, you may get arrested. Um, he said it's called the Freedom Rights Coalition. We, I think they planned about three or four in a row. He said, we're just going to plan them and we're going to do them. So then when we get to the next one, we'll be able to say, the next one's this state, the next one's this state. And so without extra planning, they were already planned and ready to roll. And, of course, right across the nation, people were like, yay, finally, we can get out and say we're not with all of this stuff and we've got a group of people and we made a whole lot of new friends and those friends are lifetime friends because they realised they lost other friends mm. but they, we built this lovely new connection and it actually that's the way New Zealanders do it. They mm. sort of gather together and they connect and I think we helped inspire that feeling back into the communities which was beautiful. And also too, as well as the Freedom and Rights Coalition, your Stand Up for Men groups, which were quite involved with that. Again, I'm in the Bay. And you guys came in here after the cyclone. Mm -hmm. Not that you would know. No. It wasn't about about telling people we were there. Um, Brian did. The locals knew you were here. Oh, yeah, but they're the only ones that mattered. Um, What happened was Brian spoke on a Sunday and said, you know what? If you've got um, leave, you can take time off. Your boss will give you time. I want as many of you. I want hundreds to go down to the Hawks Bay. They're setting it up for us. Michael, Michael, of course, and Jules were just wrapped about it, and um, Shane and Anna. And they got together. And then Brian and I said, well, we'll sneak in. And we did three days there. And we met so many beautiful people. And we were shoveling mud. And, you know, actually, it was quite funny. I was like being a little supervisor. Move that car here. Let's do this. And I loved it. And then people started taking pictures and I said, we're not here for this. And um, we met some beautiful people that said, can we just say thank you to you and Brian? And can we say thank you to Man Up? We said, yes, say thank you to Man Up. Um, and we had lots and lots of support. I mean, that stadium was full with food, with oh, mm. everything. Actually, you could camp out there and have a really good time. But, you know, the teams would have their brief in the morning. They'd take their, they'd take their um, waters and things and then, Food was delivered to them on site. And it was just lovely. You sit down, you know, sit down in the mud. Sometimes you're eating a sandwich and you're having all these beautiful apples and, and bottles of water. And you're meeting all these wonderful people that are just there from all across New Zealand. You know, we've built just just beautiful, beautiful, as I said, beautiful relationships. Mm. It's just, I just loved it. It showed the importance of community. Mm. I think that's one of the things that we've lost. We've had governance which has spent a lot, a lot of time trying to convince us that they are the single source of truth and every all roads shall go through them. Yeah. But when it came to this disaster, what we certainly saw here on the coast, whether it be here or up in Gisborne, and I know I've spoken to, I spoke to Peter Mortlock several weeks back and he sent a team up there through Norm McLeod. And if you were going to wait for the government to come and bail you out, you would be still waiting. 
Yeah, well, the thing is they showed up and, you know, they showed up for a photo shoot and then they fly off again. They do a bit of a helicopter ride around. And the thing is we have a man-up team in, in Gisborne. We had helping here up in um, West Auckland. And the thing is that's the neat thing about the man-up community. They're only a phone call away. They're a 24-7 organisation. You know, we are pushing uh, man-up along because – they are genuinely helping and supporting all communities. When you can get somebody, and this is even in Australia, Kenya, Pakistan, you get somebody ring from Melbourne panicking because they, they say that their brother has threatened to commit suicide. And um, What can I do? What can I do? And within half an hour, you've got somebody from an office in New Zealand contacting somebody over there, and that person has been supported and now going to Manor. That's the sort of support that Kiwis do. That's mm. I reckon that... What we're doing is just a natural Kiwi thing to do is help one another. And I think the government tried to divide us, stop that sort of, you know, connection because they realised that if we form together again, we're going to be unified again and our eyes our eyes were open and, and other people's eyes will open and that we will stand together and we're going to continue to stand together. It's not over. That health response bill was renewed again. Well, why did it need to be renewed? Renewed again, I think, until May next year. It means that any time after the election, whoever gets in can say, oh, actually, I think I'll call it back in and then they can start controlling people. But New Zealanders have got to let their minds go back to the way we used to be, how we deal with sicknesses and how we work through things together. And don't let that international jargon flow through our government to us and rob us of our liberties and our freedom. Mm. Getting back to the election, you're running in an electorate with uh, Penny Herari. And yep. so he's got, and it's really only you and him that have got name recognition <laughs> on the ticket. I know him. And the thing is, you know, you get a whole lot of portfolios and then I don't see much done done to them. And the other thing is this, there's not a, there's, there's not a, a thing for men. There's not things for family. There's not things for men. I, there may be a touch on things for women. But you see, now we're seeing the highest incarceration number of Maori women in the world. And I realise that, um, and we all realise, is that they're left to carry so much burden of the home that sometimes them getting into drugs, hey, driving without a licence, because they've got to get the kids to school. You know, they're stealing things because their children need them. Not that it's right to do that, but you can see the desperation. And then what happens is they're incarcerated. Then we've got a whole nother burden of grandparents having to raise grandchildren. And I know of many great-grandmothers like me, my sort of age and a bit older, who are raising their mokopuna because the tāne has gone, the husband's gone, and the mum's gone into um, prison. And so when you see those things happening and you know it, what do you want to do? You want to get in and help. So if people begrudge me for wanting to help when they know, they you know they genuinely know what we do. If you ask anybody what Man Up's done or Legacy for Women has done, they'll all say they've done good. But then they don't like it associated to Brian and Hannah Tamaki. But who, who are the beginners of that programme? Sadly, people... Brian and Hannah Tamaki, because mm. one day they managed to change their lives, turn their lives around, help a few others, and they saw that others could do the same, and now thousands of thousands are doing the same. It is about caring and loving our culture, our people, all people. And so that is why I'm going to stand. I do do something. I've got I've got the fruit that backs up my words. I'm not just a person that walks around pretending I'm doing things. I actually do do things. So. Mm. 
So what do you say when you look at, because I've seen a real 180 shift mm. in the philosophy and attitudes of someone like John Tamahiti, who was all around Māori empowerment for a long time. He was about Māori standing on their own two feet, making sure that they made things better for themselves. And then all of a sudden, critical theory and wokeness, for a lack of a better term, arrives. And it looked like that you could get a lot more political capital by turning Māori into victims. What do you think around that? Do you get frustrated with that? Because you you work in the empowerment space. Yeah. Do you get frustrated when someone like him, who was a strong leader, mm. is it a case of the ends justify oh, the means? I've got or- to say- because you have a big urban authority and you're paid to do something, does that really make you a leader or does that make you an employee to the government where we do what we do voluntary? So does that make you a leader? I think when you lead, when you're not getting paid for what you're doing, I think that's leading. I'd like to know how many Māori um, up the top became very wealthy overnight purely because of all the things that were pushed out, the mandates, the you know, we had the testing station on, and I want to make it clear to everybody, it was a testing station. We agreed only to the testing station. We never wanted and have not agreed to the vaccination being on site, and I think that's going to be something that I'm talking to the media about more. But that was spun by somebody else. But I'm just saying, hey, people, Brian and I have been true to our word. We're still unvaccinated, and we did not allow vaccinations to happen where the testing station was. There is a medical centre, there are three other medical centres, and they did have mobile units, but that had nothing to do with us. I just want to make that clear because I know people get a bit concerned about it, like, oh, Brian, oh, it's got a, you've t- ticked a question off for me. <laughs> well, and and I'm making a rebuttal mm. in the paper about it too. Um, so for me, you, you don't be afraid to speak up because, to be honest, I don't care whether people like me or not. Because the people that I work with, the people that I'm helping, they like what I do for them. And so it's not about being liked. It's not about climbing a ladder of success. Your success is how many people are following you. That shows you leadership. And I think around the nation, people see that. But for me, it's empowering all people. Everybody has got potential inside of them. There's leadership inside of everybody. If you're a mum and you've looked after the budget, you've looked after your family, you've got your kids to school, you've helped them with their reading, all those things, and let's get back to maths, reading, English, and school instead of sexualisation of our children. Let's put that out there on the table as well. But you'll be a better um, finance minister than Grant Robertson because he's throwing everybody's money away, but I'd like to know how he budgets his, his own home. Look at all these wonderful people that now are putting their hand up to do something. I, you know, I've got to salute, you know, you guys having the station, um, Voices of Freedom. You know, there's a whole lot of wonderful organisations that have done great work through what's happened to us all over the last three years. To be honest, we've all got the same passion and, and we want people to realise you are free to choose. And if you choose yes, you're, that's okay. If you choose no, that's okay. But let's have um, that freedom again to make decisions for us over our well-being, over our families, over the way our children are educated. And if we can assist by getting a few people around the table in government, I think that will make a ginormous impact on the changes that need to happen. So if you managed to roll Penny and you won the seat, can. <laughs> would you consider a coalition with anybody? Is anyone on the table that you would go, hey, give me a yell, I'll sit down and have a corridor with you and we can talk? Or would you fly solo? Oh, well, it's so funny because 
at the moment, everyone says we'll never work with the Tamakis. Well, it's not just about the Tamakis people. It's about Vision New Zealand. It's about the Outdoor Freedom Party. It's about Rock the Vote New Zealand. It's about Freedoms New Zealand. Um, it's not. It, it, the thing is, if I knew that good voices were going to get around the table, not just my voice, but other good voices, I'd be clapping and cheering them on. But sadly, people have their own egos. And, you know, they say, I think they used to accuse Brian of having the biggest ego, but he started Freedoms um, New Zealand because that's what the people asked for. No one asked, no one else asked. The people at the by-election asked for that. And so he said, okay, well, I'll, I'll do it for them. And then you've got all these other people starting all these new parties now. It's like, people, the people asked us to work together. Why can't you work with Brian and Hannah Tamaki? Actually, to be honest, we're probably the most well-known leaders that have helped and assisted people in this nation but you've got an issue with us. Get over yourself and let's work together because we all want the same thing. We want our nation to be healed. We want our people to be able to walk in liberty again. And we want voices at the table. Actually, to be honest, what does it hurt to have a little bit of faith, somebody with a little bit of faith at the table? They're not going to rule the whole roost. And you can see from what we did with the Freedom and Rights Coalition, it's not about just our faith, but it was our faith that gave us the strength to stand. Well, you look at someone like Christopher Luxon and they he claims to have faith, I don't know. Whenever it crops up, they use it and weaponize it against them in terms of uh, social policy. So how do you then look at that? As you said, if you have are someone with a little bit of faith, yeah. how do you then tackle those entrenched cultural ideas like gay marriage, like abortion, if you had a seat at the table? Yeah, well, you know, I've made it very clear to people that I wouldn't try and um, change the the gay marriage bill because I understand I've got gay nephews and nieces, and you know, they're they're in civil unions, they're in marriages, and they and I know they love each other, and I've seen where they've come from and how they're in love now, and so for me, it is about a choice for that. My my biblical side might not agree with it, but my love for people is accepting of them. But if they ever became Christians, they'd have to maybe reconsider where they stood, but that's up to them. But when it comes to the extreme abortion law, that would be definitely put straight back on the table. So anyone out there that's... Um, so that's the late-term abortions that was pushed yeah, through under urgency in the first lockdown. Right back, push it right back again and then get people talking again because why was that pushed through at a time when our, when our country was under all this COVID stress? Why was it pushed through? Don't you think we should have just left it to the... Weren't we, weren't we not supposed to be going to hospitals and weren't we supposed to not be shacking up with all these strangers and doing all these sorts of things? So why was it pushed through? So you have to ask yourself that. So, yeah, people, that's me. That's what... I stand for. Um, I'm, I'm very pro-life. You, I won't, will not flip-flop around that. Um, I'm not ashamed of the fact that I am a person of faith. If you go into court, you know, you, the Bible's there, the law's built on, on the Bible. Um, so is it okay to use it sometimes and not other times? If you truly want to live your faith, then that's your choice. You know, I've got to say something about Calvin Davis with the, the prison ministry with Manor. He said, I don't want Brian Tamaki's program in, in prison because he's just trying to, it's a recruitment place. But okay, so it's okay for gangs to recruit, but it's not okay to help men get their lives on track, get their families back and work through their issues. You know, there's this hypocrisy. So you might not love Brian and Hannah um, faith, but a lot of people respect the work that we do. And I will not flip-flop. We will both not flip-flop. It is important to stand your ground on your conviction so people know where you stand. So 
you're not the sort of person, and I know that I've heard Winston Peters has made all these promises to people, and then when when he gets in, they go, well, what about our promise? He goes, I'm allowed to change my mind. Well, one thing I can tell you absolutely is that Hannah Tamaki will not change her mind, and I'm pretty sure that Brian Tamaki will not change his mind. But there's a whole lot of beautiful people that we want to work with. But coalition, mm, I haven't heard of anything yet, but maybe if you if we get a few really awesome candidates like, you know, Michael across the line and hopefully myself and a few others because I'm standing 19 candidates and Donna and I are working on the Māori seats. If we get that many people, then somebody will come knocking, but then there'll be some really tight negotiation going mm. on. What's the one issue that you would be a deal breaker? So if you were to get across the line, you ended up, say for argument's sake, yeah. and I posed this question to Helen Houghton last week, for argument's sake, Winston got across the line, you got across the line, you sat down and had a conversation to Winston. What would be the sort of things that you would bring with Vision New Zealand that would stand aside from New Zealand First policy, for example? What would be a deal breaker for you? Well, firstly, I'd want a very honest leader and a very honest negotiation because, you know, there are, there. I know that when United Future did some deals, they had to forfeit some things. And I'd be like, well, these things I will not forfeit. So if you want us to work with you, then you're going to have to accept these things. And you know what? It's quite wonderful because when I met Helen a few weeks ago, her and I just really hit it off. I think she's an amazing woman. She's and, a lovely uh, woman, yeah. Yeah, I really like her. And I would you know, love for her, her to get in and, and even work because I'm, I'm pretty sure we're, we're very similar in lots of things. But then it would be like, who else gets in? And we go to the table together because we can't do it alone. I mean, I know I would not make it by myself. I need to have people to to work alongside with. I'm not. I'm more a team player than an outright. I can make a decision. I, I can make decisions, but I love teamwork. So even though I am a leader, I prefer to work in teams. So for me, it would be about a true team coming together with a total understanding, transparency, and honesty with each other. So what we've you know committed to the people, what we've said we're campaigning on that we would still be allowed to hold those pillars up and that they would be accepted. Mm. What's the one thing now for you and Brian? I mean, you're both incredibly busy. As you said, you've got a multi-generational home, four generations <laughs> under one roof. What are the things now that you're doing outside that, for you two? You know, like what are the things that you think, right, time for us to take a break or uh, do something for ourselves. What does a bit of time out for Hannah and Brian Tamaki look like these days? Well, in actual fact, we took our break before we went. We in um, April we went over to Israel. We always wanted to go there. We decided we were supposed to go there five or six years ago, and we didn't. So we decided to do that. But it's so funny because he he and Sue are leading the Freedoms New Zealand, and I'm still leading Vision New Zealand. So we do different talks. So it's quite funny. It's like at night time we might sit down and go have a cup and go. No talking about anything. Okay. Let's not talk about anything. And we laugh. But, you know, who would have imagined that a husband and wife would both be leading political parties and both have aspirations to get in and help? But he's very strong on the law and order policy, but also for the fact that he's got a team, I've got a team. Sometimes the teams blend. Sometimes we do different things. When we went on the road, he'd be speaking, I'd be speaking. I'd be like, you know, but people go, oh, but there's the Tamakis there. There's the two Tamakis. Well, that's not our fault that we're the ones that – have got an aspiration and um, and a passion for our nation. And, and I say to people, but I was there first. But I'm going to tell you something. I did not agree with Brian standing for politics until we went to Israel. They said Jesus was a, um, a rebler. His church was called a cult. He spoke against the, the, the leadership of the day. And he was 
crucified. And I'm like, well, thankfully, Brian, they can't crucify you. But really touched my heart. And I thought, you know what? He stood up for people. People have said, strangers come up to Brian, shake his hand. All these beautiful New Zealanders come to our meeting, shake his hand, thank him for what he's done. And then I thought, you know what? Am I being selfish? So I said, you know what? When we get back, you tell them that you, um, that you could do it. I don't care. You can do it. And I'm going to do it. And I don't care what people say about it because at least you have stood in your own right. I'm standing in my own right. Together, it's amazing. And so what I did when um, we had the coalition for people coming on the board and the list, I said, look, I'm not going to be involved in the, um, in the council. I will be a silent member on the council. I will not speak into the council. The secretary of our party or my deputy. So Anne Williamson is the secretary of Vision New Zealand. Pekka Robinson is the deputy leader. So they will be the ones that will speak into council. I will pull back purely because I'm Hannah Tamaki. But I still think that I should be a woman in my own right, be able to have my own voice as well. But people have a, you know, they have an issue with it. So I've willingly stepped back and let the others step forward into that position. It's flowing wonderfully. You can do negotiations that work for the good of all people, for the good of what you're wanting to achieve. And I think it's not about your personality or you. It's about what's going to work for the people that you say you want to represent. So for me, it is about the people. It's about representing the people. It's about being an example to the people. And how many people could say that Brian and Hannah Tamaki have not done well for their people over 43 years of us being in full-time ministry. It seems strange in a political realm, um, leaving your church hat sometimes over here, but you can't get away from the fact that your core or you know your belief structure helps to build what you're building. And for me, it is about loving one another as God has loved me. And so that is my mantra. And helping people, helping those that haven't had the tools to help themselves, give them the tools, give them the support. And I always say to people, a hug and an encouraging word can go a long, long way for just one person. You just never know who hasn't had a hug in a day. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it, Hannah. I want to thank, thank you, you so much for your time this morning. Pleasure. Greatly appreciated. If anyone wants to know anything more about Vision New Zealand or Freedoms New Zealand, where do they go? Well, they can go to the um, the Vision New Zealand website, go to my page, actually go to Vision New Zealand page on my Facebook page and like it. And then you'll be able to keep up with what I'm doing. Oh, and I'll speak for Freedom New Zealand too. Go to their page and like it as well. <laughs> but thank you again. I've loved chatting with you. All the best for what you guys are doing. Oh, thank you very much. This has been Hannah Tamaki from Vision New Zealand. More still here to come with Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. Marty's waiting in the wings and we've got more Media Matters here on RCR. If you also want to catch up on what Brian Tamaki is up to, make sure you check out his latest interview on The Crunch with Cam Slater. You'll find the replay at realitycheck.radio backslash replays and just click on Cam's Crunch icon to find the interview. RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media, and now you too can be an integral part of it by joining the RCR Foundation Members Club. Receive exclusive benefits only available to club members, including your own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions, along with our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, that's delivered to your email box every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio 
slash members to see how you can join the mission that's making a difference. Making a difference. Welcome back. You are with Counterculture here with Marie. And as we do this week, it's time to say a very good morning to my partner in crime, Marty Gibson. Good morning. Morning, Marie. How are you doing? Good. I am good. We were just having a little quick chew fat before we got started. It, it just felt really grisly, didn't it? Ah, yeah. This last week. It's very grisly. The, the, you talk about the media specifically. Yeah, yeah. and politics. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think... We look, we need to strap ourselves in. It is a marathon, not a sprint, but things are starting to get a little bit grisly, and you can kind of feel it, you know, now that we're only what three or so weeks out before the, the house goes into recess and stuff is getting thrown around, and it is just all starting to get a little bit fractious. I enjoy Derek Cheng's um articles for their figures, but I as I described, sometimes reading his stuff is a bit like a fever dream, you know, just all of these disparate facts and figures that are often contradictory and not necessarily stitched together in a way that provides an overall sense of meaning. And and I guess, yeah, the grisliness is that fever dream broadly applied to everything. You, the other thing I notice is kind of waves where, where New Zealand female journalists seem to all feel aggrieved at once as if they all synchronize up <laughs> this week. Uh, the ladies seem to feel particularly hard done by. To be fair, though, Marty, most of them are pretty menopausal these days, just the same. <laughs> well, I'm not saying They that. all are ladies of a certain age. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, Chanel. No, there we go. Maybe Chanel synchronized well, up. Oh, man, I even read his thing this week. So what was Derek talking about? So let's start with Derek and go from there. Derek was taking a deep dive into what's actually going on with youth crime and what can be done about it, but it didn't necessarily do what it said on the box. Um, He started out by saying just because youth crime is more visible doesn't mean it's on the rise, even if a huge majority of people think it is. (laughs) So, I don't know. Pretty yeah, close but- to, to gaslighting and just throughout the article conflated the lack of reporting of numbers with a lack of it happening. You know, just it's one of those, just if a tree falls in a forest and no one, if, if yeah. a dairy's ram raided and the government decide that on the eve of the election, it's better not to capture the statistics. Does it actually spoil the high trust economy and uh, ruin a family? So yesterday I heard a news article, Wellington College, or was it Wellington Girls College, the one that's right in the centre of town, advising its students to take extra precautions or be very, very careful when going to the train because of the high rates of crime that are occurring on Wellington train platforms at the moment. And then there was a call for people who were affected by this crime to actually contact the police and report it. So they know that the crime is going on. They're fully aware. And it's essentially, apparently, girls are being targeted with high-value items such as cell phones and expensive pieces of clothing. That, to me, indicates youth-on-youth crime action. But they're having to ask people to come forward because, obviously, these things happen. These girls are getting, you know, intimidated, mugged, robbed, what have you. And either they're not getting reported because they know it's a waste of time, or B, they're potentially contacting the police and the police are saying, oh, yeah, there's not a lot we can do about it. Sorry, Pete. Yeah. Well, I don't know. But, you, you know, to a that lot feeds of people who get that response from the police yeah. to seemingly serious crimes. Um, 
yeah, and you throw that and you dovetail that in with they are wanting to encourage people where possible to get out of their cars and use public transport. But you have got a large central inner city school advising caution to these students around taking public transport. What messaging does that send? Public transport is not safe. Well, you know, I'll... I'll set out a theory at the outset and I'll reference it, uh, I guess, throughout the show. I was thinking just generally about how New Zealanders have been suckered in by this government and its claims to compassion. So the theory that that I came up with was there's essentially parasitic compassion, Mm. which plugs into that desire that people have to help their fellow community. I often describe government as growing like a cancer between individual New Zealanders, stops them talking to each other and says, don't worry, yes, we're working very hard on helping these poor people. When Really, when you think about it, if I think about the neighbourhood I live in, if there was some way of getting together with the highly functional people around me to address the dysfunctional people and we weren't overwhelmed by them, you do something about it. And what's more, you do something more effective about it. Like you'd say, okay, we've got eight families here who are pretty effective, pretty functional. We've got one family here whose kids are heading for illiteracy and starting to get into petty crime uh, and often have nothing to eat. You'd go, well, there's eight families. We can handle that. And in fact, I'd almost say that if you really wanted an effective social policy, it would be to allow people to basically be responsible for improvements to other individuals. So, okay, if I can get that person's weight down by 20 kilos, you pay me 500 bucks. And, you know, if you compare that spending with the amount of spending on zero results, and I know you've done a deep dive into the Māori Health Authority Mm. which seems to be the best example of that this week. Yeah, you could get so much more done. But getting back to this parasitic compassion, it plugs into people's concern about the environment. So if you disagree with some bankers printing money as debt for our grandchildren, then you don't care about the environment. I mean, if if you disagree with Māori elites being given power of veto over governments, you obviously hate Māori. I think we've got to become aware of the prevalence of this, share it, and so it renders it less effective because it's got us into the crap here. But also, too, this government has gone and positioned itself as the arbiter of that compassion. Yeah. Because there was a time, you and I are both old enough that we remember this, that you didn't rely on the government for these sorts of things. If you wanted to get something done at the school, you had a working bee. You didn't wait for the ministry. You had a working bee, you all got out together, you raised the funds, you did it, and you made it happen yourself as a community. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is where, and I, you know, almost feels monotonous bashing nationals' hopeless efforts to make a case for them being able to care about New Zealanders. The case you can make is it's it's about short-term versus long-term compassion, and Labor's all about short-term compassion. If you want to be compassionate to a meth head, the most compassionate thing you can do in the short term is give them some meth. If you want to uh, be compassionate in the long term, the most compassionate thing you can do is often call the police so they 
stop doing the crazy stuff. They get a bit of Valium and some treatment. There's this ongoing misapprehension that what poor people need is money. Mm. I was just about to say that compassion is synonymous with spending. And this government, I think, genuinely believes, I think Grant, without a shadow of a doubt, believes he can spend his way to a kinder, more compassionate, effective New Zealand society. But honestly, you've got to get in the head of one of these people who is totally tribal, totally tribally labour. And they've got, I think I mentioned it last week, you know, what's good for me is good for labour and what's good for labour is good for New Zealand. And so just just short circuit the whole thing and, well, what's good for me is good for the country. And Mm. right now what's good for me is basically soaking up all the money I can so uh, national get in and they can't do much and then we'll get returned fairly soon and I'll, you know, have a shot at being leader. I think it would shock New Zealanders how little of what Labor's doing currently is actually based on what's good for New Zealanders. It's all about what's good for Labor. Hmm. There was certainly, I felt, a collective sigh from a lot of the commentators uh, over the last week, and I think that there has been a certain number of them that have realised that I think getting to the the pointy end of the, the event, that the likelihood of Labor returning now with the polls is lower is dramatically decreasing so therefore that i think they're being a little bit freer about what they can talk about but it's almost like they're waking up from a, some sort of fevered dream that actually things are not what it is that they had said on the of, of the brightly painted aotearoa kiwiana tin and they're trying to uh, they're actually going, oh, well, look, there's this, this money being spent and these, these, the weights in health, especially in health. Mm. Um, there are issues there. There are all of these different things that are wrong. Now, these are the things that we've all been barking on about right from the get-go, uh, yeah. and we've been sort of poo-pooed and called conspiracy theorists and, and all the rest of it. And I think some of these chickens are now beginning to come home to roost. And it's just the cynicism now of policy, like the, the voting down of the parental leave policy, was one that uh, in the last week. So that policy, I think, was it Nicola Willis that introduced that? And it was around allowing the parents, allowing parents to decide how that parental leave was allocated. They had full crossbench support, but Labor used its majority to vote it down. Why? Because this coming week they're going to be announcing their policy. In their head, they obviously believe that what they're going to propose is going to be an absolute game changer for voters. Yeah, it's not about what's good for New Zealand. I mean, I no, guess it's if, what's if, good if for Labour. Want to look at where the media's framing of New Zealand's politics comes from? It comes in no small part from from that neo-Marxist idea that you've got to favour a weaker side. So you know, if someone's down, you've got to Boy them up. And if someone's up, you've got to push them down in equity. Equity. That's probably something that feeds into the inexplicable level pegging between national and labor. Even in the pretty detailed economic analysis of what's going on, they never really fully talk about actually how much of a debt hole we're in as a result of these Marxist student politicians being given a credit card. The last number I saw was 194 billion. That's 194 billion. billion. And what was that up for when they took power? It was like 18 billion or something, wasn't it? Yeah, and but that was before that number was before the two settlements that have both been reached this week. Now, I'm not gonna lie, I'm perfectly happy that 
teacher strike days are over. <laughs> I mean, they were driving absolute chaos through this house. That's two really large wage settlements out from the eve of an election, the optics, because we all know that this government is about optics. They're not about yeah. outcomes, they're about optics. It's all they care about. So they needed to get the optics of those nailed down. Though They also are aware that both of those groups, being nurses and midwives and teachers, are very, very much in their base. So we can't have the base starting to look elsewhere for a new home. And the polls were telling them that they were. So they needed to you know, get motivated to actually settle both of those settlements, the side of the election, yeah. and with enough time that they could potentially turn this ship around. Dear Leader and Robbo were both suckled um, as student politicians by, well, um, Jacinda Ardern, Helen Clark, and and Robbo, uh, Michael Cullen. You and I are both old enough to remember back to Michael Cullen on the eve of um, John Key's national government taking power, you know, where he said, there's nothing left. We've spent the lot. Mm. So that's what he's doing. He, he yeah. doesn't want to give National any room to do anything um, ambitious. And, I mean, he was in the news this week essentially saying this. You know, there's no room for anyone to promise anything because I've blown it out from 10 or 12, 18 billion, whatever it was, to almost 200 billion. That's never really acknowledged in, in the media, is it? Is, you know, if you spend 200 billion, $200,000 million, you've got to have something to point to. I mean, they've got no completed public works or anything, but, you know, they're going to be able to get some of those 200 new PR people in um, the erstwhile health department to point to some wins, but it wins on a credit card. I've got all my newspaper divided out and stapled up into themes this week. And there were two quite interesting things. One, I did pull together the politics and the fiscal whole theme, which of course, Winston brought up last week. I know you guys discussed it on the panel. Uh, Nicola Willis picked it up in the House, which of course led to the whole great mirth around the size of Grant's Hole. One does not want to ponder the size of Grant's Hole too closely, I would have thought. And I found two very interesting things. There was lots of um, toing and froing about, is there a hole? Isn't there a hole? We know there's a hole. There's nearly a $200 billion hole. Mm. We know this. Interesting thing around this, again, is timing is everything. And Winston's ability, I guess 40 plus years in politics, will hone this skill, his ability to actually hunt out certain topics or certain themes that will highlight what is going on or, or be a touchstone for New Zealanders is really a rare gift. It has gotten to a point now that I think even the most jaded of media commentators are, and there's only one or two that are still saying, oh, no, he's not going to get in, he's not going to get in. I think that there is now a bit of a whiff of, oh, we may not want to put that stake in the ground just, yeah. just in case he does. And the number of column inches that he has now had since he's had two high-profile interviews. He had one with Paul Brennan about six or eight weeks ago. He had an excellent one with Cam Slater. He is now starting to get the column inches because he's, his voice is getting out there. So to me, I actually am going to, I'm going to do a big ups to, to RCR on that. We're actually mm. starting to chalk up a few little wins. We are the little minnow. We are nipping around the, the edges, but we are having those conversations. We are getting plagiarised yeah. by the people who are, who are getting paid big money to do the job we're doing. 
for free. A certain poll got mentioned yeah. a couple of days ago well, on the largest radio platform, which was a poll commissioned by us. Was it Hosking said that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's worth having a good think about the $200 billion because $200 billion is $50,000 $50, for every man, assuming 4 million New Zealanders, every man, woman, and child in New Zealand. And if you if you kind of factor in that only 20% of uh, New Zealand households are net taxpayers, that's a quarter of a, a million dollars for every Men, women, you know, that every actual yeah. net taxpaying household's got to pay back. It's um, and you know, there's been a lot in the news about Kiwis buggering off to Australia or overseas. So Ooh. in terms of this, the size of this so-called hole, right, 20 billion is also the number that is they've been talking about. So that's in terms of the current accounts. Now, they have to present a set of accounts, is my understanding, a set of accounts prior to the election. and The prefu, is it? Or? Yes, yes. And uh, the prefu, a snazzy acronym, prefu. Mm. Our source has told us that there is scrambling going on in the preparation of the prefo and crown departments have been told left right and center that they are literally having to to find money now to give you a really lovely interesting example of how crown entities and government entities think about saving money uh, i've got actually a staff member who's a former midwife and she was saying the last time that they had this that it all came down on high that all this money needed to be saved it even got so bad that in the department that they were in, she was a midwife, so she was in the maternity department, that all staff were told that they needed to bring their own pens to work. Oh, right. This is the sort of penny punching that you're talking about. I think that's a lot of pens to get to 20 billion just quietly. Yeah, that's a lot of pens. That is a lot of pens. Now, there is a lot of disbelief of whether or not that this is here. But the most important thing is, is that Winston raised it. Nicola took it to the house because obviously Winston can't. There was a little bit of jovility, but you need to take all that that aside. And the media played up all of that, right? They played up, mm. oh, ha, 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 bit of a joke, play on words, bad choice, blah, you know, and all of that. Yeah. But actually, no, this is an important issue. This conversation needs to be had. Is there some cooking of the books before the prefood comes out? And is there, you know, and even if they come back and they I can see it now. Oh, no, no, no. Look, there has been some challenges in Cyclone or COVID or whatever du jour that they're going to, to cook up. I mean, I heard um, Hipkins yesterday turn around and say, oh, no, we wouldn't have been in recession if it weren't for the Cyclone. Well, there was the Cyclone and there's always something. Yeah, I, I don't believe that we actually drop, um, there's a policy to actually drop uh, terrible news on a Friday. Yeah, <laughs> I know. But I mean, so, you know, on top of on top of that, you've got the the poor old uh, dairy farmers, and you know, the average one, you know, even after the Fonterra dividend, you know, making a hundred thousand dollar loss. Or funny, you should mention that. I pulled that one out now. So eighty thousand dollar loss. The dairy whole milk price has lost. Uh, as of today, with the $7 a kilo payout, a model farm that makes a $190,000 loss, which is not offset by the dividend and capital return, making a loss of $80,000 in round figures. Mm, yeah, and that's $5 billion over the next year that the economy is mm -hmm. going to be down. Yeah. On top of what these guys have done, borrowing and wasting $200 billion. You're right, there's precious little in the paper to actually confront 
just the hideousness of of that wastage and the terrible opportunity cost in terms mm. of life. There's lots of dancing around on a pin. Lots of dancing mm. around on a pin with it. Yeah, and as you said, no one will actually tackle it head on. And that's before we even get to health. So I mentioned before I did actually, because there is no cynicism that these things drop on a Friday, and of course anyone that listens to the show knows that health is a personal hobby horse of mine. The Ta'akafai order, which is the, so normal people, that's the Mighty Health Authority, that report dropped on Friday. The preface into this, of course, has been that exchange between Brooke Van Velden and Willow Jean Prime in the House last week around the Prezi cards to expectant mothers. And Willow Jean Prime ended up having to come back and recorrect and apologise on that because if you didn't believe that we were operating under a race-based health system up until this point, get your heads out of the sand Remember that ostrich parasitic syndrome I talked about last week? Mm-hmm. We're in a we're in a race-based system. And the foundation of this Māori Health Authority was a way to quote unquote address inequities within the outcomes for Māori. Now, the two-page report, I have read two-thirds of pre- I needed to take a break because I'm, I'm a lady of a certain age of a How certain weight. My blood pressure didn't need it. But to get to that far, it took me about an hour because it's really chewy. And there's, I mean, you've written report. You've been a person that's been a report writer for this sort of things. Why do they have to, to put so much word salad, so much superfluous jargon? Oh, clever. I mean, oh. if I wrote it, it would be called, hey, why don't you fellas turn up for your appointments report? Yeah. As far as I got, there was a lot of jockeying to justify what essentially is an absolute disaster. The first year of that authority has a disaster. So we're talking about outcomes, whereas they have tried to pull staffing and teams that are specialised into Māori healthcare to be able to deliver outcomes. Mm. Okay. On paper, that's a good idea. But they did not hire people with the skill set in order to deliver those outcomes. They hired people based on race. Well, you know, I mean, yeah, I guess it it hadn't worked before, but it hadn't worked when people who were kind were doing it. So maybe... It's okay. It's okay. Socialism and communism, they will do it better this time. Yeah. So there were certain uh, high-level findings, and I'm just going to touch on a couple of these things because, as I said, she's fairly chewy, and I know people out there, like you know, if you're of a certain age, like your blood pressure doesn't need to go up anymore. They had a temperature-based report card, you know, a little bit like those uh, British weather maps now right. you know, that you can see. So you have red for requires immediate action. You have orange, which is generally, um, oh, she ain't flash, but potentially could be turnaround, and green is they've done that okay. So of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine metrics that they've got here, only two were green. Only two were kakari here. Only two were kakari here. And one was the interim um, Haora Māori strategy is expected to be delivered, delivered by June 2023. However, tensions described um, Manatu Haora and Te Akafai Haora teams working on this require the intentional reset of ways of working. So in other words, you've got two bodies who couldn't get their acts together, who were supposed to deliver a report by 2023, but they have to reset it because they don't agree. And that got a green light. 
Mm. Excellent. And the other one was ministerial requests. Uh, there's an opportunity to streamline requests from the four health ministers, four, count them, four in that year, four health ministers, in order to assist uh, to Akai Fai order deliver on its urgent priorities. That's what got the green lights, um, better reporting to the revolving door of ministers. We did the backstage pass with the foundation members on Sunday. And one of the things that popped up was they asked Rodney, you know, is government really like yes minister? Mm. And when you see reports like this, I just think to myself, this should be a BBC comedy if it weren't so tragic because it's true. Mm. I mean, the money committed to this, there have been there's lots and lots and lots of information in here, but zero on outcome. There has, I could not find anywhere in this report. Now, to be fair, again, I've only read two thirds of it. I haven't quite got to the last of it. Where there was actual outcomes, actual outcomes that are meaningful to Māori health. Mm. So again... Māori are being screwed the pooch again after 12 months, 12 months, because this is obviously the great hope that they had to improve outcomes for Māori. We know that there's a high likelihood that that will get scrapped with an incoming government. And to be fair, it should never have been created in the first place. One of the things I cited in there, you had entire teams that were already working on community-based care. And there are actually some really incredible Māori health workers out there who are doing the mahi, they're putting the work in, they know the communities inside and out. They are facing an uphill battle at the coalface, trying to get their people to appointments, trying to, um, I mean, I had a midwife, I remember her turning up at my place crying when my kids were little and she literally arrived with me. I made her a coffee, she sat down, she burst into tears. Mm. And she had spent, she was late to the appointment, she had spent the best part of all morning chasing in a, in a local community a newborn baby to do its postnatal check after a few days and nobody knew where the baby was oh man oh i think auntie's got it then they go to auntie's house no no queer's got it queer's got the baby because mum had mum had gone off on a bender and so she arrived at mine and she's you know tearing her hair out and she's mm. one of, you know one of these frontline public workers that is just working their tripes out to make this happen and then you have all this bureaucracy that's creating all this layer of complexity and actually good people like that. Yeah. You know, those midwives, those district nurses, those community workers, those ones working attached to Marae who don't complain. They just get out there and do the work. This is not making their lives easier. Well, I mean, sorry, I'm the, getting um, the, the, the constant refrain as well is there's no continuity of funding and i mean i've worked for a um, community mental health organization and most of what i did chairing that and being on the board securing funding and providing paperwork to the ministry now we had a whole lot of people who weren't accountants you know what would have been handy was a centralized accounting system and continuity of funding, even centralised HR. You know, we were doing a whole lot of things. I didn't get to do anything that I was interested in having to go at in that role. It was all working out the extent to which we were probably or possibly getting ripped off by the people who were there full-time while we were there as volunteers. And I think that's, 
you find that's replicated throughout the country. But you've got, yeah, as you say, all these bureaucrats who are who are there making things more and more complex and making compliance more and more challenging and also incentivized to paint a story of terrible need so they can secure funding through the central government. So, you know, the, the aim, and this is a problem throughout all the health system, throughout government, it's not on what's healthy and how do we make it healthier. It's what's unhealthy. So we focus on what's unhealthy and gradually all the resources get sucked out of what's healthy ostensibly to fix what's unhealthy, but it never does. Parasitic compassion. The word of the day. (laughs) You probably didn't hear the interview I've just done, but I've just spoken to Hana Tamaki and we talked about Vision New Zealand, obviously, but we talked a little bit about the Man Up program and you know, they have been trying to get that program into prisons mm. and it has been blocked. And she's quite honest. She said, look, they don't want to do it because we're the Tamakis. I actually really enjoyed chatting to Hannah. I thought she was really sincere, very open. And it frustrates me because I look at, you know, what work has been done in those prisons. There was, I know a program, Celia Lashley. If you ever have get a job opportunity to see it, there is a wonderful documentary film. This film was made because she found out she was dying. She had terminal cancer. And she was working in that space to get young men rehabilitated out of prisons to actually create a better life for both themselves and their families um, if they mm. had young families. And she was effective. She wrote this incredible book called he- he'll, he'll Be Okay. Yeah, I read it that. Was, yeah, it's a great really book. Yeah. Uh, it, as a mother of two sons, it, for me, it was one that was crucial in terms of how I founded my parenting. She has an observation of how young men function and operate and what they need in terms of boundaries. So that documentary was incredible. And what she did in that program was incredible. Now, the Man Up program, for all intents and purposes, is really similar to that. You know, it's a, it's a program program that can go in and it helps to take these men who are disaffected and have made some pretty bad choices mm. and helps them make better choices in their lives for, the, for themselves and their whanau. It's whatever they're doing is not working now. Why on earth Calvin Davis would then turn around and say, oh, no, we can't have that? Well, he was quoted on on that interview with Cam Slater by Brian Tamakia saying, well, you know, if we let man up into prisons, you know, he'll just get them to join his church. It's like they'd rather he was, they were in gangs. And I guess. Because they don't want them to leave the church of labour. That's why. Well, yeah, this, this is comes back to that my oft-repeated adage that governments love anything that makes people demand less freedom and more government. So people getting their act together, forming better lives and better businesses, doesn't make people demand more government or, or less freedom, but people in gangs do. And again, you know, it's quite dizzying, confronting how evil that kind of way of managing things is. You know, you've got these people and we're believing that they're actually trying to help, and I guess a good number of them are, but you know a tree's fruit. Yeah, you do. And I think a lot of it now, I think if there's a theme that we're going to draw out of any of this for any of our listeners this morning, is that actually we need to do things ourselves. 
because the government is not going to do it for us. We can see this. We know this. We need to actually take our own communities back and start building it. And I know there are a number of people who are already doing that and a lot of the work that the BFF teams have been doing in terms of living free and staying free has has been working within those little communities. But you can actually have those courageous conversations yourselves at home. And one of the, I think, little courageous conversations that's going to start cropping up is, did you see the fuss that's been made around this book that has just got appeared in its schools? And there was a little bit that popped up in the media over it. The book is called Welcome to Sex! Exclamation mark. And it's a new sex ed book. It is targeted to 11 to 14 year olds. The Herald on Sunday did an editorial on it and they sort of cited that there were a few elements there but they I mean the general cut and thrust of it is look just don't worry about it really um no. it's not as bad as it might seem look the kids are going to look at porn anyway yeah, it's far better than them looking at porn it's far better than them looking at porn yes you know there are all these different myths around sex and bearing in mind this is targeted between 11 and 14 year olds with a mature eight-year-old, you know, they'd be happy for a mature eight-year-old to be reading about. It's just yet more creepy interest in other people's children. I certainly spend a bit of time now. I've got young kids, you know, being asked questions and thinking, you don't need to know that. I, I you know, I mean, it's a many ways a father's duty to preserve innocence. And so I resent these people, and I mean, I actually did read uh, Chanel Lal's column on this. Some parents will not be accepting of queer people and will hinder their children's learning due to their prejudice. It's like, well, they're not your kids, buddy. Exactly. And, and it's another little bit of neo-Marxism. When you say, well, okay, gay sex in a nightclub toilet is equally as valid as heterosexual sex within the confines of a marriage, that gives you the duty to teach both as if they're both equally valuable. Mm. That leads to all sorts of issues. Well, it does lead to all sorts of issues. Chanel went on to say, I think many people who label the education woke believe that if you do not tell young people that queer people exist, they will not become gay or transgender. That's delusional. Gay and transgender people have existed for as long as humans have walked the earth, including times it was a crime to be queer and there was a zero, and there was zero queer representation. No, Chanel, that's, um, I, I call bullshit on that. I'm sorry. Mm. Uh, that's absolute bollocks. Like it was just another situation of normal. Now, to me, this is where it's entirely up to each parent how you raise your children. And again, I get, I'm like you, I get really, really grumpy when people like Chanel, who to be fair, has been raised in a deeply conservative Fijian household. And this was part of the reason why he's he's become such an advocate against conversion therapy, because they tried to literally pray away the gay for him but not every household is like that Chanel not every household is like that and not every conservative household is like that you know there are Mm. there are boundaries that need to be set and this is one of the elements I think that it does need to be set and it worries me that when it comes to these sorts of normalizations of sexualized behavior does that then mean when one and remember one in three girls 
one in four boys in this country are sexually abused by the time that they're 16, does that actually mean that when they encounter that abuse, they're actually struggling to delineate the align between what is accepted and what is abusive? Because well, there's a I'm seeing those lines being blurred. Um, that um, went into a gay bar and was interviewing uh, men about their first homosexual experiences, and they virtually all of them were from an older man. And then, you know, they also asked them about their own, their own, you know, youngest sexual partners. And many of them confessed to having essentially been pedophiles. So, so there, there is an element of abuse in it that, you know, if, if you're going to say, oh, well, one's just as good as another, you're not going to understand there's some pathology. And I think beyond that, the other thing that I've been suspicious about is that the ubiquitous acceptance of homosexuality isn't necessarily just to encourage that kind of behavior as to poison fraternal love between heterosexual men that is often not in the interest of mm. governments and tyrants. The sort of love between men that you see in war and things like that, and it's sort of somehow you know, somewhat, you know, it's just it's, it's a theory. Well, no, I know. I think you're onto something there because I think there is uh, that whole kind of bro code, you know, being with the boys, that kind of uh, closeness, which I think men really need. Well, gay men, actually. I've spoken to a few gay men and, and that's something they really want, you know. So I remember talking to one once and he said, you know, like, I just love to have some mates, you mm. know, you know, aren't in the scene, mm. and it's quite a different thing. And and that sexualization of all love is destructive. Yeah. No. And again, does this tie into the high suicide rates that young men experience in this country, because mm. they don't have that contact in terms of support and, as you said, fraternal love by just yeah. having a mate someone that they can ring up and chat to and and actually physically spend time with, go and have a beer with. Well, especially I mean, as they get older, I mean, you'd know this more than me being, you know, more on the scene than I am, uh, Marie, but, you know, you hear a lot about older gay men really sort of being lonely and just like the uh, the trans lifestyle, it, it's not necessarily good for a uh, long lifespan. No. And you could say, well, maybe that's because um, – you know, they're facing terrible prejudice, but I don't think so. I, I don't, even people who find it distasteful, I don't think, uh, most people don't hate on people for I what don't, they I don't think a, a lot of it too, though, is not just even actually gay men or of a certain age. I think it's, if you're not in a marriage and you don't have a partner or a spouse and, and, and an extended family around you, if you're an older person and you are on your own, you've either never, you've either not married or you've, or you've lost a partner or whatever the reasons may be, it's harder to make friends beyond mm. a certain age. And loneliness is a huge issue. I mean, actually, that's something I want to explore, is the epidemic of loneliness. Yeah. Yeah, and when I was in Sydney in my, in my apartment, it was kind of really good. I did a lot of sleeping, and it was really easy to keep the place clean. But, yeah, it was a very much, you know, a, a lot of the, um, the chaos and joy was, uh, was gone. Mm. Have you well, got anything else on your little list there? 
Yeah, I've got a lot underlined, but yeah, it, it, we're down to that high fiber, low nutrition mm. uh, kind of content. While you're having a little sift through there, one of the, and I mean, we've already covered this, and if you want to hear more about this, uh, pop back, uh, Paul Brennan a couple of days ago did an interview with Sue Gray. Sue Gray was up, uh, up in uh, front of the Law Tribunal in regards to comments that uh, a complainant made that she had on social media, and uh, she has been found not to have breached conduct standards. And I'm really delighted about this, and I'm delighted about this is that the tribunal actually um, dare I say it, to be joyful about a tribunal doing its job because the complainant, it wasn't made in her context. It wasn't a client complaining about her as a lawyer, which is what those tribunals are there for, right? It's when you, as your job as a lawyer, have done something of concern against a client, they make a complaint back to the tribunal, and it generally is quite specific. It should be the same with teaching. It should be the same with medicine. But these tribunals in recent years, have sort of grown a little bit too big for their britches and, and overstepped the bounds in many cases. We won't go there with a medical council because we will be here all day. Mm. You know, I've already got my ranty pants on, so we, you know, we won't go there. We'll shelve that for another day. However, I was really, really delighted that um, she was found not to have breached the standards. We do not consider, when balanced against the right for free speech, that the remaining charge could be made out to the standard of unsatisfactory conduct, the ruling said. Gray said she was happy with the decision. Freedom of political speech is really important. And although you're a lawyer, you can still wear different hats in the other areas of her life. And that is why it is so important, because what this ruling has meant is that Comments that she has made as a citizen, whether it be as a politician or as a private citizen, should not go back and affect her ability to practice the law. Well, it shouldn't, but I would wager that she's had a tough time fighting it. And uh, the tough time she's had fighting it would put uh, plenty of lawyers off sticking their heads out, just as it put plenty of doctors off actually saying, hey, you know... uh, I don't know about giving this to pregnant women because they saw poor old Matt Sheldon just said that and suddenly got in the crap. This hasn't really been tested to what we normally expect. And this is why this is so important. I think if if this had gone up to the tribunal even a year ago, the outcome would have been different. But I'm really delighted that it wasn't. To me, this is really important because, as you said, you know, doctors are being, I mean, so many doctors are being persecuted and hunted, I know of two who have left the country to work mm. overseas, pursued by the medical council because uh, they well, they tides, hold a different opinion. Tides going out, and uh, you know th- that's why they're in. Oh well, you know, let's put all this behind us. You know, the point you made before about taking responsibility and reclaiming a community, I think, is exactly where New Zealanders need to focus more. Because I, I find it doesn't suit me necessarily to be whining. I don't like it. <laughs> it's disempowering. Uh, and I have thought maybe I should do a, another show, which is looking for solutions. And I also thought maybe what Reality Check Radio should do is um, make some content for kids. You know, just say, hey, look, you know, here's as simple as we can make it. But this is balance, just so you've heard it and you can make your own minds up. But You've been told we're going to be roasting to death the next few years. Yeah, it might be bullshit. Yeah. Mm. Here's why traditional approach to life is 
okay. as likely as anything to, to allow you to have a happy, fulfilling life. Here's why, you know, maybe it's not a good idea just to, you know, follow the old baby boomer, if it feels good, do it line of reasoning. As I said, I've got so much underlined. I've done so much reading, but it's quite a challenge to to pull it all together. As you say, we're coming into a, a period just before the election, which is going to get crazier and crazier. But yeah, there's some big gaps in it. The biggest gap is that $200 billion yeah. deficit and, and the gap in the paper where they should be talking about that a lot more. Yeah, they should be. And of course they won't. But, you know, this ne- next week is another week. So we'll see what they talk about next week. There's bound to be something else. Obviously, too, in the next, um, and we've also in the lead up, uh, Kelly J. Keane Mitchell is looking at coming back to New Zealand to actually attend the court case uh, of the person who is charged with assault. So that's also going to start. I mean, already Ali Mao's, um, you know, Gnashing a teeth over the neck. I'm sure there'll be lots more on that yeah. front as well. Between you know, there was a really funny thing in in that where she was basically saying, oh, you know, she was being overly provocative. It was kind of like the whole, oh, she was asking for it because she was wearing a short skirt. I shouldn't be telling you that that is a terrible argument, Ali Mao. I thought that that was kind of hardwired into you, knowing that, you know, women should be free to express themselves and without fear of men bashing them. I mean, just maybe reflect on that, Ali. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a bit of reflection going on. So there you go. If you've got anything you want to share with Marty and I, definitely do it. Um, again, we had some lovely feedback. Actually, should we have a quick check of the feedback? Because we that might make me feel better. Uh, yes, well, it will make will you it? feel better. Uh, oh, here we go. Great media matters today. Thank for the in- thank you for the insight on Minister Kitty Allen. I would never have heard that on Corpse Media. That was from Mark. Marty needs to get his quotes on RCR merch. <laughs> today, Marty is a total cracker. Actually, you have got some good ones. We do need to get onto some merch. We need to make some t-shirts. You and I have been talking about these t-shirts for years. We yeah. do need to get around to doing it. They're a powerful medium. And uh, yeah, we, you're right. We... we uh... Oh, here we go. Um, hope your day is going well. Please pass on that I love Media Matters with Marie and Marty. The dynamic duo could listen to them all day long. Been spoilt for choice on RCR. Such a high caliber talent. It's from Trace. So there you go. Mm, go well, us. We all do right. appreciate it. Thank we, you. It's a it's a lonely thing sometimes being a voice in the wilderness, but um, I know that there are a lot of Kiwis out there who uh, have been gaslit along with us, and it's time to, uh, as you say, Marie, take it back a bit stop this government growing like cancer between us or Mm. all government really you will be back with a political agenda of course on friday with cam and olivia i will be back so don't disappear here on rcr i will be back with the woke news of the week coming up here on reality check radio oh thanks marie have a great week everyone it's time for the woke news of the week Welcome back to the Woke News of the Week. Here are some of the stories that are out and about this week. A binary brouhaha in the latest news. Richard Dawkins, a well-known figure, sparked controversy by discussing sex and gender in his latest podcast. He stated that sex is binary, either male or female, based on biology, and expressed scepticism towards how people declaring their gender identity differently from their biological sex. This view clashed with some of the leftist ideologies, leading to outrage on social media. 
Dawkins also faced criticism for his previous comments on transgender issues, which resulted in him being stripped of his Humanist of the Year accolade. Despite supporting use of preferred pronouns, he's opposed forcing others to change their language to accommodate unconventional definitions of gender. The debate over gender and transgender rights has become a sensitive topic. While Dawkins believes in discussing such subjects openly, he faced backlash from those who disagree with him. This controversy reflects the growing divide between different ideological groups, with some people advocating for gender inclusivity and others defending more traditional views of sex and gender. It also raises questions about censorship and the impact of new laws on free speech and scientific discussions. From the good for me but not for thee file, Lizzo, a renowned singer and body positivity advocate, found herself embroiled in a controversy regarding her choice of backup dancers and weight representation. In a recent performance, Lizzo faced criticism from some spectators who argued that her backup dancers were predominantly thin, seemingly contradicting her empowering message of body inclusivity. This sparked heated debates on social media platforms within the body positivity movement. Supporters of Lizzo defended her, highlighting that body diversity extends beyond just her backup dancers and that her own presence on stage remains a powerful statement. Nonetheless, critics argued that representation matters and they urged Lizzo to prioritise inclusivity in all aspects of her performances. As a prominent figure, Lizzo's handling of the situation and broader implications for the body positivity movement and the entertainment industry, ultimately the incident sparked important discussions about the complexity of body representation and the responsibility of those public figures to promote inclusivity without hypocrisy. A bright spot now for the former Bud Light employees. Public Square, a conservative marketplace, wants to help laid off employees from Bud Light to find new jobs. Anheuser-Busch, the owner of Bud Light, had to lay off about 350 workers, causing Public Square to criticise the company's leadership for prioritising left-wing ideology over good business practices. Public Square is encouraging the laid-off employees to send their resumes, and they promise that they'll share those resumes within their network of pro-America businesses. The Bud Light company has faced financial challenges due to a boycott triggered by hiring transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney for a promotional campaign. This boycott has affected the company's earnings and market share, leading to the layoffs and tanking stock prices. Public Square is a marketplace that promotes conservative values and has gained attention for its approach. The company believes it has a significant market of Americans who feel their values are being ignored and they aim to cater for those individuals by providing a platform that avoids political and gender ideology discussions. We'll see you in court. In a lawsuit filed against Google and YouTube by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the prominent environmental lawyer and Democratic presidential candidate, claims that the tech giants are engaged in unfair and unlawful practices regarding the dissemination of information and removal of high-profile interviews with Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan. Kennedy claims that Google and YouTube, both subsidiaries of Alphabet Inc., have implemented biased policies that suppress and censor content critical of vaccines or supportive of alternative viewpoints, which he is campaigning upon. 
Kennedy argues that the company's actions have resulted in the suppression of legitimate scientific debates and open discourse, which has hindered the public's access to diverse perspectives, including on vaccine-related matters. He contends that the interference has not only violated individuals' freedoms of speech, but also affected public health discussions and awareness. The lawsuit seeks to challenge Google and YouTube's policies, aiming to promote a more balanced and open platform. Kennedy and his legal team assert that the company's actions have had a detrimental effect on public health and society, emphasising the need for transparency and unbiased access to information on such critical matters. That's been the Woke News of the Week. If you've got a new story you would like me to cover, send that along to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text the link to 2057. Would you like to be a part of Reviving Honest Media? At RCR, we're on a mission to do just that. We report on critical, censored stories and hold those in positions of power to account. As Paul Brennan says, it's a good mission. Now there's an easy way to support RCR and at the same time receive some amazing benefits. Our Foundation Membership Club is here. As a member, you'll enjoy a host of exclusive benefits, including a daily bite-sized news digest, a backstage pass to RCR, and discounted merchandise. Find out all you need to know about our Foundation Membership now at www.realitycheck.radio. Thank you for joining me this week for another dose of counterculture. Keep the feedback coming. Inbox at realitycheck.radio will drop us a text, as I said, 2057. We'd love to hear from you, good, bad, or otherwise. Remember, if you like the great content we bring you each week, please feel free to donate as we are funded by the people for the people. And look out for the new RCR Foundation Members Club with either annual or monthly subscriptions. You can get great benefits such as mates rates on merch, exclusive email news content and backstage passes to Zooms with myself and some of our other wonderful RCR hosts. Every little bit helps. Actually, even sharing your favourite RCR replay or clip, it costs nothing and it makes the world of difference to us. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Buskey on RCR. RCR. Reality Check Radio. Radio.